I mean, I was there when we read Harriet Washington's book on medical apartheid. And I just remember Johns Hopkins coming up, Johns Hopkins coming up so much. And I was listening to the president of the HBCU, the local HBCU today, and she was very, very pleased with the fact that the HBCU would be partnering with Johns Hopkins. And uh, during the presentation, everyone seemed to be quite impressed. But if you don't give people the, the movement and the movement of memory, they keep repeating the same mistake. Johns Hopkins was the first research university in the United States. They're situated in an area that that was a hub of slave pens, slave jails, whatever they call them. Boston is still, Baltimore is still like 40, 50% black people. They did so many experiments on black people right now. They want to act like, you know, oh, we just really want to do things correctly. But they set the standard for the mistreatment of black people in medicine. They really did. Time now for StoryCorps. In the 1960s, Vivian Thomas ran a research lab at Johns Hopkins Hospital, helping invent groundbreaking surgical techniques, even though he didn't have a medical degree. Thomas was also a mentor to black laboratory technicians at Johns Hopkins. Two of them, Fred Gilliam and Jerry Harris, came to StoryCorps to remember the man who changed their lives. It was mind-boggling. I had no medical experience, and he took me under his wing, and he taught me everything I needed to know. Back then, there was smoking allowed in the buildings, and he would always have his pipe. He'd peep over your shoulder, and he wouldn't hesitate to say, well, you're getting ready to make a mistake. But when he would puff on that pipe, smile, and walk out, you knew you were doing your job. Yeah. He had patience. He would never raise his voice. And he obviously saw something in me that I maybe didn't see in myself. I remember that was the one time in the critical part of the operation, a doctor became ill and fainted. Vivian was walking by at the time, and I'm standing there, and he said, well, no, you go ahead and finish it. (laughs) And I was stunned, but I wasn't shocked. I think that was one of the days that I grew up as a surgeon. He was an excellent mentor, and he was a father figure. The very first car I had purchased, somebody hit me in the rear, and I was without a car for two weeks. So he came by my house every day and picked me up and took me to work. Never accepted a penny. I think Vivian's greatest accomplishment was just training and mentoring young men. But we weren't appreciated, I don't think. How many people knew that there were 26 black technicians in that lab and what they were doing? You know, I feel blessed and privileged to have been part of his history. If I had the opportunity today, I'd just thank him for being who he was in my life at that time in my life. That's Fred Gilliam and Jerry Harris remembering their mentor, Dr. Vivian Thomas. Gilliam later worked for the American Red Cross. Harris stayed at Johns Hopkins as a coordinator in the School of Medicine. Dr. Thomas's pioneering research and innovation helped lay the groundwork for modern heart surgery. In 1976, he received an honorary degree from Johns Hopkins Hospital. He died in 1985. Swing my beach at the playground, you know?
28 million children in the U.S. do not have a playground within a 10-minute walk of their home. And children from lower-income neighborhoods tend to have less access to parks and playgrounds than those in high-income areas. But as special correspondent Kat Wise reports, a nonprofit is working to end those play space inequities. What did you do in school today? I went on a playground. After a long day at work, lifelong Baltimore resident Brandi Walker often takes her kids to one of their favorite places in the neighborhood. The Harlem Park Elementary and Middle School Playground. It's a fun place to be, says Walker's 11-year-old son, Jordan. My favorite part is when I'm on this spinning thing and there monkey balls. I like to play with my friends and my uh, family. But this colorful playground wasn't always so fun. In previous years, the playground was, to me, sad. Um, there, there was just a black top and a field. The playground didn't allow the children activities to build gross motor skills. Many of Baltimore's playgrounds are in need of a makeover. This year, a citywide assessment found 112 playgrounds at schools and parks in the city are in poor condition. Most of them are in neighborhoods with predominantly low-income communities of color. People of color are absolutely disproportionately impacted by place-based inequity. Lisa Ratliff is the CEO of Kaboom, a nonprofit started in 1996 that's helped build or improve more than 17,000 playgrounds around the country, including Harlem Parks in 2016. Because of historical and racialized disinvestment in our communities, kids don't have places to play in their schools or near their houses. People of color have suffered and people of color have experienced lower budgets, lower resources, and quite frankly, lower prioritization in making sure they have what they need to thrive. She says now more than ever, play spaces are needed as many children cope with mental health issues due to the pandemic. The science tells us that our well-being, our physical, our mental health, uh, is affected by having great places to be outdoors, connect with our earth, connect with our fellow human beings, that there is really no stronger remedy to physical and mental health and what we call a sense of belonging in communities. We know what's possible here. Ratliff recently visited a playground about to get a makeover with officials from Baltimore's public school district and the Recreation and Parks Department. So there are actually going to be two play places here. So Kaboom partners with local government and community organizations to identify neighborhoods in greatest need of a playground and then helps find funders and facilitates the planning and building of the playground. Members of the community, including kids, also play an important role, providing their input on designs and helping on build days. Earlier this year, Kaboom received a big boost, $14 million from philanthropist Mackenzie Scott. Playgrounds have recently been built at Butterfly Park in Milwaukee, Chinatown in Philadelphia, and in San Francisco's Heron's Head Park, where kids now play in a nature-inspired space. But Baltimore has been a big focus. More than 40 playgrounds have been built or improved there over the last two decades. As a young person who grew up here in Baltimore, living in Park Heights, I know how much a wreck and parts facilities can really help young people. Go, go, go. Baltimore Mayor Brandon Scott says he appreciates Kaboom's partnerships with his city and he wants to do more. $41 million from the American Rescue Plan have been designated for upgrading Baltimore's parks and recreational facilities. Developing a playground is like allowing and developing a child to grow into their full self. 
uh, they're going to be in a safe place, right? They're going to be able to be physically healthy. It helps with their mental health. It allows their family to experience things. There's a sense of community they get from being with other folks. And that's what you need to grow healthy and safe communities. In April, Kaboom launched a new $250 million initiative with the goal of ending place-based inequity in 25 communities in the next five years. What does that look like? A high-quality playground near every child's home or school, according to Kaboom. Baltimore was the first city selected for the new program. More than 50 playgrounds will be built or improved in the next few years. This is a solvable problem. It is uh, fairly low cost and high impact. We can make some significant advancements that don't just have immediate benefits, but have long-term benefits for our communities and our kids. Back in Harlem Park, Brandy Walker says her neighborhood's rebuilt playground has helped her kids and her. When we come to the playground, I, I just feel safer and I, I'm able to relax and debrief from the day before going home and um, starting our evening. Good job, Taylor, up top. For PBS News Weekend, I'm Cat Wise. That's the way we overcame the Brady Inflation, the ongoing coronavirus pandemic, grown children moving back home, issues that remind us how, for all the ways that we're different, Americans have a lot in common right now. Today, NPR's Alana Wise reports on how one black family keeps perspective and thrives during these times. A fluffy white handful of a dog greets visitors at the Farron's house. This is the only biological child we have together, and his name is Ash Ferens. Tyrone Ferens and his family are a tightly knit, blended group. Between Ferens and his wife, Michelle, the family has six children. I have two, and my wife has four, and um, so we're like the real-life Brady Bunch. Since the start of the pandemic, two of the couple's adult children have returned home. The children saw their finances stunted by the pandemic, while it energized their parents' professional growth. Michelle had been a retired respiratory therapist. When the pandemic hit, she found her expertise in high demand. They were offering large amounts of money for people to come to these hospitals, but it was out of necessity. But the money alone wasn't enough to put Michelle in harm's way. You have to believe in something. You have to have a, a, a love for it and, and a heart for people to do it. It's not money that gets you to go and do things. While Michelle worked the front lines, she and Tyrone came up with a plan. While she was doing that and I was doing the things that I was doing, we could afford to build this home, our forever home. Tyrone Ferenc picked up extra shifts for his work as an electrician. He worked over 115 hours in two recent pay periods. Just gave me less time to miss her. It was a lot of sacrifice because I would see my wife once, one weekend every two months. And while she's gone, I just worked because there became a lot of opportunities for overtime. The family's success is a far cry from where he started his life. Farron spent years of his early adult life selling and addicted to drugs. 
That time saw him land in correctional facilities across the country. He estimates he's been arrested about a dozen times over the years, spending about a year and a half incarcerated. It changes the way you view everything. My dog goes to the groomer and he's in a cage for an hour, I get upset. I just, it's such a miserable experience. Ferens outlines his once bleak reality from his bespoke home in Maryland. The six-bedroom, five-bath house with a pool and two ponds in the backyard was built during the pandemic, a testament to the Farron's financial success. After his last stint of incarceration, a six-month bid for felony assault in 2007, Farron's had an awakening. When I got released, I was determined because I had sons that I didn't want to continue in that line. I wanted to change my life. Tyrone Ferens was trained in the Navy as an electrician. He was dishonorably discharged after a failed drug test. But since getting clean, he reconnected with his teenage love, Michelle. They share their new home with Ferens' mother, two children, and one grandson. I think it's just made me aware of how fortunate I am, to be honest with you, because the things that my mother sees that would impact her, she's on a fixed income. So when you raise the price of milk or a half a pound of bacon, it infects her. Tyrone makes sure his mother, Patricia, has everything she needs. That includes costly dental work. The family's children have also needed extra support during the economic downturn. Again, Michelle Ferens. We get calls weekly, seriously, just for gas, you know, like, and, and they haven't had to do that before. You know, it is scary because we don't know what's coming. I mean, how long we can keep it up. Issues like this and his time behind bars inspired Tyrone Ferens to become politically active. The Justice Department says that more than 650,000 people, like Ferens, are released from prison each year. Unlike Ferens, many of those returning citizens will be rearrested within three years of their release. Everyone deserves a second chance. Because you make a bad decision, you do your time. I mean, at some point, you paid your debt. Tyrone Ferens was able to take advantage of opportunities to put him on the right path. Opportunities, he says, others should be afforded as well. Mr. Ferens, you may begin. He testified in 2017 to the House Ways and Means Committee. It bothers me because I feel as though my son and my children are still paying for that mistake um, in regards to the opportunities that I have that would affect their lives and our living situation. His two children at home are now both training to become licensed electricians. I would just see him at work and I would just be amazed by like the amount of things he would talk about or the amount of uh, things we would see or people we would like motivate to be doing what we're doing. Andre Lee is Farron's 22-year-old son. The two aren't blood-related, but they share an undeniable bond. Although he is my stepfather, he is my real father at the end of the day because of what he's done for me in my life. It's because of him that I can call myself a man and be proud of it. Lee lost his job a year ago at a juvenile correctional facility. He says he was racially targeted. He gives this example. There was a CO that literally said, as I'm getting checked in, she was like, you look like you're supposed to be in here. He filled in the gaps of losing his job, picking up work at McDonald's in DoorDash. But when Lee's roommate lost his job, Lee made the difficult choice to move back home. I felt like I failed. I felt like I didn't do what I was supposed to do with the opportunity that I was given. 
Lee now rents out that house, a property that he had bought from his dad. Farron said his daughter, Regina, lives on the basement level. That was going to be my man cave down there. I got a hundred uh, inch screen that comes down, you know, it was going to be my man cave thing. But, you know, kids need a place to stay. That's far more important than a man cave. The family keeps perspective. Michelle continues her work in healthcare. Lee does volunteer work for the less fortunate. And Tyrone Farrens is a passionate advocate for human rights, including things like banning the box for returning citizens. The family will vote in the midterm elections, motivated by issues that impact their loved ones most. Alana Wise, NPR News. This is Steph Curry, the world's leading expert on cryptocurrency. I'm not. Okay, quit messing around, man. Give me some tips on crypto. No. Back in 2014, Samson Williams got some advice from a coworker that would change the trajectory of his life. He was like, Samson, here's three things to improve your life. Uh, get on LinkedIn, wear better socks, and buy some Bitcoin. So I got on LinkedIn, bought myself some Hello Kitty socks, and bought some Bitcoin in 2014. And it was that last thing, buying $200 worth of Bitcoin, that sent Samson down a rabbit hole. A few years later, by 2017, he saw hundreds of other new cryptocurrencies being created. He saw the world's first Bitcoin billionaire get minted. And it felt like it was becoming a mainstream thing. Samson became a true believer in the coming cryptocurrency revolution. Samson is black, by the way. And he says one thing he was particularly excited about was this growing idea in some parts of the crypto community that crypto could be a driver for racial equity. We're going to change the world here. That was a few years ago. And since then, Samson's view of crypto has changed a lot. And that was even before the massive crypto crash this year. Retail investors, particularly in black and brown communities, they've been sold the sizzle, but there ain't no stake there. And we're the first group who loses out. This is The Indicator from Planet Money. I'm Adrian Ma. We've been digging into crypto this past week, and today we're going to focus on black investors. In a recent survey by Ariel Investments and Charles Schwab, 25% of black investors reported owning crypto, compared with just 15% of white investors. And other surveys tell a similar story. So today on the show, what's driving that adoption? And what does the current crash mean for this idea that crypto could be a building block for black wealth and help close the country's longstanding racial wealth gap? When Terry Bradford saw the surveys showing black consumers embracing crypto way more than white consumers, she was a little surprised. It didn't intuitively make sense to me that that was actually happening. And I was like, no way, that can't, (laughs) you know, that can't be true. Terry studies payments systems at the Federal Reserve Bank of Kansas City. She says part of the reason she was surprised is that black consumers are a lot less likely than their white counterparts to invest in the stock market or retirement funds. For a lot of reasons, which all lead back to systemic racism, African-Americans in general have less wealth to invest. Whether it's income, home ownership, home equity, investments, black consumers are almost always at the very bottom of all of those measurements. Terry wondered why an outsized proportion of black consumers seemed to be drawn to this relatively new, relatively risky digital asset. In her research, a few themes emerged. For one thing, she says, 
a lot of black consumers are distrustful of traditional financial institutions. And you don't have to look too hard into history to find examples of why. She said, take, for example, the Freedmen's Savings Bank. Congress chartered the Freedmen's Bank in 1865 after the Civil War. Tens of thousands of formerly enslaved people deposited their money there, but those in charge of the bank were white. The folks that were responsible for running the bank got into some pretty uh, risky, perhaps shady transactions, and in the end, basically lost all of that money. The bank collapsed. Many depositors lost all their savings. And, and Terry says this is just one early example of how financial institutions have failed or mistreated or discriminated against black consumers. In the middle of the 20th century, you had decades of lending discrimination, a.k.a. redlining. Then in the early 2000s, you had predatory lending in black neighborhoods, which helped lead to the Great Recession, which wiped out a huge chunk of the country's black wealth. And to top it all off, add the microaggressions, or, or in some cases, the uber aggressions a lot of black customers have faced while banking. That type of thing lingers, but it does generationally have an impact. And this distrust is there. Some folks feel the financial system just is not working. A recent estimate of the per capita wealth of white and black Americans pegs the wealth gap at six to one. And those researchers say the gap is getting wider. Terry says crypto might seem to some folks like an opportunity to catch up. An alternative path to financial freedom without banks or government control, where the barriers to entry are low. And crypto marketing has helped carry this message. The digital rebellion is here. Old money is out. New money is in. Celebrities like Spike Lee, Megan Thee Stallion, LeBron James, and a whole lot of others have appeared in ads championing the virtues of crypto. It's been hyped pretty well by athletes, entertainers, you know, so folks that look like us, right, that do things that we do, that talk the language that we talk, that share some of our, our common struggle. And while Terry is not completely anti-crypto, this hype does worry her. The folks that can stand to lose the least are the ones that are going to get hurt the most. And there are no guardrails around this right now. The value of cryptocurrencies worldwide has plunged about 56% in the past three months. That's according to coinmarketcap.com. Even so, some people believe that cryptocurrency can still be a building block for black wealth. Tanya Evans is one of them. Here comes this new asset class. And it doesn't require permission to participate. Tanya is a professor at Penn State Law, and she teaches classes on cryptocurrency and blockchain technology. So many people talk about the risk of getting into crypto. I am one of the people who talk about the risk of not being in it. Even as a Black queer woman in this space, what opportunities can we have if we lean into the language of the future of money. And that's what I think this space presents the opportunity for us to do as Black Americans who are going to move the needle and hopefully stay ahead of the curve. Now, in recent months, lots of people have lost money. She doesn't want to diminish that. But Tanya still believes it is relatively early days and that cryptocurrencies and the technology behind them, blockchain, 
they're not going away. In the meantime, Tanya says she wants to see more consumer education around cryptocurrency and more consumer protections. And on that point, Samson Williams agrees. You remember Samson from the top, early Bitcoin adopter, Hello Kitty socks. But he's coming from a very different angle. You're seeing that people are spending their hard-earned money, their paychecks, their rent on these digital quote-unquote assets that have no underlying value. Today, Samson describes crypto as a Ponzi scheme. If you want to sustain your faith-based currency, the best way to do that is prey on the uninformed. Samson says he sold off most of his crypto holdings a couple years ago, but he still has a foot in the space. He has a consulting business where he focuses on blockchain. And so while he still sees some promising uses for the technology, he's no longer betting on crypto as an investment or as something that's going to help solve the racial wealth gap. The day someone says, here's how Bitcoin or crypto solve unemployment and a living wage, then I will take them seriously. So if you don't have a job, you don't have the disposable income to invest. And so Bitcoin doesn't address human rights, civil rights, voting rights. Before I got out of the church of Bitcoin, I, I did pretty well, but I'm still a black guy in America. Is Bitcoin going to help other black and brown folks uh, out of the vestiges of unchecked capitalism? No. Why? Because that's a political decision. In other words, Samson does not think that crypto is going to help spread the wealth. And there's actually early economic research to suggest the wealth already in crypto is pretty concentrated. According to this one study that looked at Bitcoin, they have the 0.01%. The researchers estimated just one one hundredth of a percent of Bitcoin investors held more than a quarter of all the Bitcoin in circulation. The farmer in the dell, the farmer in the dell. Hi-ho, the dairy-o, the farmer in the dell. Barbara Norman farms on land her grandfather bought in 1945 in Covert, Michigan, after his family migrated north from Mississippi, where they were sharecroppers. Today, it's known as Barbara's Blueberry Batch. These are blue crops. They are traditional. Everybody loves blue crops. They're sweet. They're not as large as those. In March of 2021, Barbara got a letter from the U.S. Department of Agriculture that lifted a huge weight off her shoulders. United States Department of Agriculture Farm Service Agency said I was going to pay off $385,657.56. This has been promised over a year ago. And that's only one of the promised payoffs. In total, the FSA promised to relieve Barbara of about a half million dollars of debt she owes them. She's taken out loans from the FSA to buy things like equipment for her farm. But the relief hasn't come. She's one of thousands of farmers across the country who's waiting on the debt forgiveness after it was signed into law last year under the American Rescue Plan Act. Since then, the funding has fallen into legal limbo after facing multiple lawsuits from banks and from white farmers alleging discrimination. When the letter arrived at Barbara's house last year, she says she felt an overwhelming sense of relief. But now she worries it will never come. And it's got you in a limbo. Because, see, then you missed a year or two years because you're waiting for this to get paid off. But you realize 
If they never pay, you've got to farm, you've got to do whatever you got to do. This isn't the first time Barbara's waited on federal relief money. In a famous case from 1999, known as Pigford versus Glickman, black farmers sued the USDA for racial discrimination. The resulting pair of settlements allocated about $2 billion for black farmers. Barbara filed a claim, but was denied. She was told she was not discriminated against and therefore wasn't eligible for a payout. She wonders if history will repeat itself. If this American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 is not adhered to, not taken care of, it says volumes of distrust, volumes of things of hurt, of pain to the farmers of color in America. And it could have real consequences for her farm. Because before she got the letter from the FSA relieving her of debt, they were threatening to accelerate her loans or face foreclosure. Are you scared of losing your farm? I don't want to, and I pray every day. And no, because I'm going to keep fighting. Over the past century, black farmers have lost more than $300 billion worth of farmland, according to one study, due to the USDA's discriminatory lending practices. Barbara's determined not to let that happen to her farm. But she says she won't pass it down to the next generation unless it's debt-free. So without this federal relief, Barbara's blueberry batch could be lost in yet another preventable closure of a black-owned farm. I'm Dana Cronin, Harvest Public Media. A terrible thing to waste. Environmental racism and its assault on the American mind. Written by Harriet A. Washington. Well, ABC 13 has been following some environmental issues in your neighborhoods, and that includes the cancer cluster in Kashmir Garden. And now people living in the Carverdale neighborhood in northwest Houston are voicing their opinions on expanding a landfill in their community. ABC 13's Derek Lewis is live near the site of where that landfill would go. Derek? Melanie, neighbors say this is a historic neighborhood. Businesses are coming in and adding value to this area. They say opening and expanding this landfill will hurt their progress. People living in this Carverdale neighborhood are fighting to stop this landfill from becoming larger. Over the years, when they started first brought the dump in, it started to uh, deteriorate our community, it started to make the value go down, and we fought hard to get it to close in. So it closed down, now they want to reopen it. Vincent Lewis is the pastor of Greater Macedonia Baptist Church. He's been in this community all his life and has seen how businesses have come in to turn things around. He says this landfill will make things worse. Now when we have companies coming in to upgrade it, you want waste management now to come in and stop the upgrades that we have going on. The community does not want TCEQ to give USA Waste of Texas landfills permission to move forward with the proposal. The commission is listening. In a statement to ABC 13, TCEQ said, at the conclusion of the comment period, all formal comments will be considered before a decision is reached on the permit application. Reverend Lewis says the details of the proposal would create an eyesore. It goes up as high as 12 to 15 story building. And so now within the next five to seven miles, all you'll be able to see is a big old dump of trash. 
Now there is a public meeting tomorrow at Sterling Banquet Hall where residents can come and ask questions as well as voice their concerns. Live in Houston, I'm Derek Lewis, ABC 13 Eyewitness News. Could have told Indians that. Same thing. Some of them did to start off with, but then they got attitude. They know we're going to take it all. You know, we're going to leave you nothing. Right? <laughs> Indians said, well, you know, I thought we were going to share. I mean, you know, that's what we sat down at Thanksgiving. I mean, you know, and say we all work together and all like that. Well, I don't think that's a good idea. <laughs> I think I need to. I think I, what I need to do is going back to giving you a good whipping sheet. <laughs> there's plenty of land here for everybody. We got more land than we can take care of and whatnot. So, I mean, we welcome you and all like that. Well, no, I'm going to take it all. <laughs> if you a bottle of whiskey, that's what you're going to get out of the deal. Right. <laughs> wow. And that's wow. what they did. And they admit that they did it. They wrote books about it, bragged about it. Yeah, how many Indians were killed today, you know? Only good Indians are dead Indians. Mm. In the coming months, the University of Minnesota is expected to release a report detailing its treatment of indigenous people going back to its founding. Melissa Olson reports that the project follows an investigation into how the U and other land-grant universities were enriched by Dakota and Ojibwe land. The U of M project is made up of fellows appointed by tribal nations, University of Minnesota graduate researchers and faculty who've spent the past year conducting research on the relationship between the university and tribal nations. The Truth Project, which stands for Towards Recognition and University Tribal Healing, began last year. The project came about as tribal nations in Minnesota learned more about the Morrill Act of 1862 through investigative reporting by Tristan Ottone and Robert Lee at High Country News. Journalist Tristan Ottone. We had found was about nearly 11 million acres of land that originally belonged to indigenous tribes and communities that had been acquired by the United States through about 250 different treaties, many of them outright land seizures, many of those treaties backed by violence, and that those lands had basically been divided up for 52 universities. High Country News estimated the grants raised almost $18 million for university endowments, with unsold lands valued at more than $5 million. Adjusted for inflation, that land was worth about half a billion dollars today. In Minnesota, the Dakota conflict would come to a violent end just six months after the Morrill Act was passed in 1862. What was more shocking was that it literally took almost just over a month for the state of Minnesota to execute those men at Mankato and turn their lands into a source of income for the University of Minnesota. It's egregious. Dubbed the Minnesota Windfall, the university received over 94,000 acres under the Morrill Act. 
The land was appraised between $5 and $10 an acre. Sales and leases raised nearly $580,000 for the university. Through the session of 1851, the Dakota were promised 2.4 cents per acre for the same land, a sum that was never paid. Dakota land benefited more universities than any other, raising money for 34 other universities across the United States. Professor Nick Estes is joining the faculty of the U's American Indian Studies Department this fall. His ancestors were exiled to South Dakota following the Dakota conflict. He says the Truth Project is an important opportunity for the U of M and other universities to reflect. Oftentimes, as Indigenous people, we are asked to provide receipts for dispossession, and I think, especially when it comes to higher education, the Morale Act provides the receipts for how the modern public university system was founded and how it was funded through the selling of native land. Professor Tad Johnson recently retired from the university, where he led the Truth Project in his role as Director of Graduate Studies at the University of Minnesota Duluth. Johnson has been working on building relationships between the U and tribal nations for the past decade. Reconciliation is way, way down the road. What we first need to get is the Native American perspective on um, their relationship with the University of Minnesota through the years. Anne Gargiola is a graduate student researcher. Helping to organize the Truth Project, she says the Truth Project is an opportunity for the U to understand its impact on tribal nations. As far as what the Truth Project is, a lot bigger than any of us anticipated when we started. Gergiola says part of the work of researching these issues is the ability to shift the historical narrative in ways that center Indigenous ways of knowing. Places like the University of Minnesota are considered experts, preeminent thought leaders. This Western hierarchical education system that we're in automatically values、um, our research practices and our ways of knowing、um, as being less than, and so. The oral histories that are being collected, we see them as just as valuable, if not more so, because they have not been listened to. The Truth Project's report is expected later this summer. For NPR News, I'm Melissa Olson, St. Paul. Idaho can be a wonderful place to live, but today we're going to talk about ten reasons you might want to avoid this place. There is just a week left in Pride Month, and this year has seen an unprecedented level of threats directed at LGBTQ people. This includes the recent arrest of white nationalists headed to an event in Cortland, Idaho. NPR's domestic extremism correspondent Odette Youssef was there, but she says the events she witnessed that day are part of a larger story. Odette, remind us briefly what happened there. Yeah, we were there to cover a pride event, Juana, that had been attracting some really violent reaction from the right online. By the afternoon, it was looking like everything actually had gone okay.、Uh, but then we got word of these arrests happening nearby, so we raced over and saw a huge swarm of police and sheriff's deputies around a U-Haul truck. Turns out the Patriot Front members had been packed inside. So obviously this was a, a major story, but I think it was one that overshadowed a deeper story in North Idaho, Juana, about how that community has actually confronted far-right violence before and what it takes to do that. Tell us a little bit more about that history. 
Well, back in the 1970s, a man named Richard Butler bought 20 acres of farmland outside of Coeur d'Alene in a place called Hayden. Uh, he turned the property into a compound for neo-Nazis, and that organization was called Aryan Nations. It wasn't big. Uh, at any given time, there were maybe one to two dozen people living on it. But it was important. Um, the Aryan Nations compound came to be a hub for organizing the violent racist right. Uh, every year, they'd gather Klansmen, uh, neo-Nazi skinheads, and others for conferences. It was also a problem for the locals, though. Um, in the 1980s, Aryan Nations began, began a crime spree and even tried assassinating prominent local figures. And here's the thing, you know, this continued, Juana, until Aryan Nations was actually bankrupted in 2000. Bankrupted? How did that happen? Well, to answer that question, let's go for a car ride with a local lawyer named Norm Gissel. You saw the driveway there? There was a big wooden structure over the top of the driveway that says Aryan Nations, uh, whites only. The road that Gissel took me along was where a terrifying story began in July of 1998 for Victoria Keenan and her 18-year-old son. They were heading home one night after a wedding in Coeur d'Alene, and Keenan's son had dropped something out of the car. So they retraced their path along the road. So some of the neo-Nazis at the Aryan Nations compound heard the car backfire. They started giving chase, shooting as they followed the Keenan's vehicle. Up the road, Gissel showed me where the Keenan's rear tire blew out. And she skidded into this ditch right here. She was right here. And then the Nazis then surrounded her car and the window was down. They started beating on her, hit her in the ribs with the rifle butt. Her son was sitting, as was cowered into the well of the passenger seat and he was being beat on and they were screaming. Gissel and other community members who'd been organizing against the Aryan Nations wrote to the Southern Poverty Law Center to share the Keenan's story. The SPLC took the case and ultimately won a $6.3 million judgment. This not only rid the community of the compound, but it showed that Richard Butler had badly miscalculated when he thought that North Idahoans would allow their community to become a hub for violent white extremists. We were able to completely rid ourselves of that group and the kind of awful culture that they were trying to present to our community. That's Coeur d'Alene's mayor, Jim Hammond, speaking two days after the Patriot Front arrests. But many people in that community disagree. They say extremism is once again making its home in North Idaho. I have heard people say it feels like when the Aryan nations were at its peak. It feels like that. That's the voice of Jessica Mahuron. She says in the last couple of years, Coeur d'Alene seen a resurgence of far-right activity. Mahuron's the only paid full-time staff member of the North Idaho Pride Alliance, which organized the Pride in the Park event. For weeks leading up to the event, she, her board members, the event's vendors, and public officials were the target of what she calls an organized right-wing intimidation campaign. There were voicemails, emails, and even reportedly a death threat sent to a city official. Mahuron felt that this just made it more important to move forward with the event. We are here for many reasons, and none have to do with hate. So on a drizzly Saturday morning, Pride in the Park opened. That means you hear protesters, you see them, they're talking, 
They're making you upset. You disengage. You be louder. From the beginning, there was an acknowledgement of the threats. This is our pride. This is our day, and nobody is taking that away from us. Can I get an amen? amen. That's right. So, but this time, it was more than just protesters talking. A few minutes into the event, we see a figure pacing back and forth near the gathering. He's in full camo, sunglasses, a hat. A mask is pulled up to the bridge of his nose. On his back, he carries an automatic rifle. He doesn't share his name with NPR. I don't like this event. I'm protesting that. And I'm also here because I'm sure Antifa will be here. There was actually no sign of anti-fascist activists. The Pride event was mostly locals gathering to celebrate their identities. That makes no difference to this armed protester. There's so many places you can go and celebrate this. Why Idaho? Everyone is fleeing from states to try to have one conservative haven, and yet it ends up here. So where do we go from here? Do we go to Alaska? You know, there's not a lot of other places we can go. Are you a native Idahoan? I am not a native Idahoan. For decades, North Idaho and some neighboring states have occupied a special place in the imagination of the far right. They envision the region as a conservative haven. Native and longtime North Idahoans say it's a big place. They have a phrase, live and let live. But that's become harder. Because lately, the calls to arm have been so extreme. That bothers Christy Redfield. She's brought her kids to the Pride event. Earlier that morning, she saw a flyer for a pro-gun group gathering nearby. They were rallying under the false narrative that LGBTQ people harm children. One line on the flyer jumped out. It said, quote, if they want to have a war, let it begin here. She asks Michael Birdsong, the group's leader, what he meant by that. We want to bring war to us, you bet we will defend ourselves. I don't hear anybody else talking about war except for your no. marketing. All right, well. Your marketing mentions war and your full two-way encouragement. You're going to have to wait your turn. Encouraging people. I know, I'm not going to. I have the right to free speech well, myself. Well, you do. You and do. so I'll walk minute. away, but I'm going to say one thing. In your marketing, you wage war. In your marketing, you're encouraging guns. That's violent. Redfield and Birdsong didn't end up arguing about their different views on LGBTQ people. They disagreed about whether it's safe and right for civilians to arm themselves when they disagree with their neighbors. That day in Coeur d'Alene showed just how volatile things could get when you mix false hyperpartisan narratives on social media, permissive state gun laws, and a sense of grievance among the far right as a Democrat occupies the White House. But Kate Bitts of the Western State Center says it would be a mistake to look at North Idaho as an outlier in America. We really see Idaho as kind of a bellwether state. Bitz's organization tracks anti-democratic movements and groups in the Northwest. She says Idaho was among the first to propose a ban on gender-affirming care for youth. It failed in 2020, but a similar ban has been introduced since then and may well pass, as it has now in other states. If we're trying to understand where the anti-democracy movement is headed, uh, Idaho is always useful to look at. But that's also true if we want to look at what the pro-democracy movement is doing. The pro-democracy movement. Locals say national media often miss this part of the story. When Aryan nations tried to make North Idaho its home, there was an unexpected side effect. Civic organizations began popping up throughout the panhandle and neighboring states. They focused on protecting and advancing civil and human rights. Christy Wood heads one of those groups. 
the Kootenai County Task Force on Human Relations. She says the recent influx of far-right residents from other parts of the country has made tensions worse. Among those migrants are avowed white nationalists. This time, they don't wear Nazi uniforms. And they have had some success forming relationships with certain elected leaders. But Wood still thinks these newcomers are finding out the same thing that Richard Butler and his Aryan nations found decades ago. What they find when they get here, though, are people like us. Our organization and all the citizens in Coeur d'Alene and Kootenai County that absolutely do not embrace that. And that's what some of these transplants will tell you, too. Like Ben. He only gave his first name. He was out protesting the Pride event and said he moved here three years ago as a conservative, quote, refugee. What was the North Idaho that you thought you were moving to? Is this what it looked like in your mind? No, not only is it not the, the Idaho I was expecting, it's not the country anyone was expecting. It's a country that's becoming more diverse, racially, ethnically, and one where people of different gender identities and orientations have, over time, been able to live more openly. That's NPR's Odette Youssef, who's still with us. So, Odette, it sounds like even if there had not been a U-Haul full of white nationalists on the day of that Pride event, there still would have been a big story unfolding in Coeur d'Alene. I think so, Juana. And it's worth noting that the Patriot Front arrests wouldn't have happened if a concerned community member hadn't seen those men loading into that U-Haul truck. Uh, And when that person called police about it, you know, the police had already had weeks of working closely with community members and organizations to be primed for this kind of a threat. You know, it's really kind of similar to how Victoria Keenan was the single person whose experience decades ago brought down Aryan nations. You know, if she hadn't been able to tap into a network of organizations that were primed to uphold the law and track these threats, uh, things might have been very different. All right. NPR's Odette Youssef, thanks so much. My pleasure. Black babies cost less. Today on the show, the silent crisis in America's maternity wards. African-American mothers dying at a higher rate than any other racial or ethnic group from childbirth-related complications. We're also hearing from doctors who say they now fear that the maternal mortality rate will go up. Americans die due to pregnancy at a higher rate than any other developed nation. And since the fall of Roe v. Wade, access to quality health care is top of mind more than ever. Black people are three to four times more likely to die due to pregnancy than their white counterparts. Jamila Taylor is the director of health care reform and senior fellow at the Century Foundation. Hi, Jamila. Welcome to Reset. Hi, thank you for having me. So we just mentioned uh, in the introduction here, Jamila, that this country has the highest maternal mortality rate than any other developed country. How is that possible? How did we as a nation get here? Right, absolutely. Well, well, first off, I think, you know, before we even get there, we sort of have to ground the conversation in the fact that, you know, these um, maternal mortality rates um, that we're seeing in this country fall heaviest on women of color, particularly black women. Black women are about three times more likely to die of pregnancy-related causes when compared to white women. And this is largely due to a history of systemic racism, both within the healthcare system as well as broader American society. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Black women just tend to get poorer health um, care when compared to, to other communities. So 
I think that is part of the problem. Um, I think another thing to lift up, too, is that, you know, this country, we actually spend more per capita um, on health care than any other country. Um, and the fact that we have the poorest maternal health outcomes, um, you know, in the in the world is, is pretty um ridiculous, to be honest. And so to make a long story short, we got here because of racism in the healthcare system. Um, And again, you know, I think even when we look at white women and their healthcare outcomes, um, I think we can also point it to sexism um, and gender discrimination in healthcare as well. So, you know, we know people of color were hit harder during this pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. Experts say that the pandemic also had an impact on maternal health. Talk to us about that. Break it down. How so? Yeah. Well, I mean, first off, you know, looking at the pandemic, you know, we saw that there were racial disparities there as well. Um, You know, people of color, particularly black and Hispanic people, um, were more likely to get COVID and and then also to become seriously ill and even die from COVID-19. Um, you know, we saw the similar disparities sort of mirrored, you know, for pregnant people. Um, you know, black and Hispanic pregnant women um, were more likely to, you know, get COVID um, and get sick from COVID. And so, um, you know, that has had a, an impact on our maternal mortality rates. Um, the CDC actually just released um, new maternal mortality rates for 2020. And we saw the maternal mortality rate among Hispanic women actually increase by 40%. Um, in the year 2020. And so that is definitely attributed to the COVID-19 pandemic and its impact on um, that particular population. And we also continue to see those rates steadily increase among Black women. Yeah. Talk about those rates. What, what is the the maternal mortality rate in this country on average? And, and how does the number change, Jamila, when you look at different demographics? Well, I think it, it changes because, um, you know, we, as I mentioned, there are disparities, right? Yeah. So, um, you know, for black women, you know, there are three times, about three times more likely um, to die of pregnancy-related causes. Um, and then we also see those rates are mirrored um, when we, when we um, look at comparisons between white women and indigenous women. Um, and, you know, for a while, the, the United States, um, it took us a while to sort of actually have a real <laughs> maternal mortality rate. Um, for years, there were some challenges in terms of the counting, you know, states, um, did not have adequate measures in place to be counting maternal deaths. I think, I think you know, you can also see some differences along states in terms of, you know, how they're defining maternal days, deaths versus pregnancy-related deaths. And so for many years, there was sort of like a patchwork in terms of measurement. And yeah. I think we're getting better at that. We have more funding um, that's going to support states um, for things like maternal mortality review committees, which are committees of, of largely health professionals, but, but then also in some states you have doulas and midwives um, that are also part of those bodies. Um, some states you even have patient advocates, um, those with lived experience when it comes to poor maternal health outcomes that are also a part of counting um, these deaths and then also trying to make sense of you know some of the particular circumstances that um, for moms who we have lost what their experiences were in the pregnancy yeah. and birth process. Well, to that end, U.S. House members, they're, they're looking to take action to change these rates. I'm, I'm thinking particularly of the, the Momnibus Act that was sponsored by yeah. uh, Illinois Representative Lauren Underwood. I want to play a little clip of Representative Underwood talking about the importance of this legislation last summer. 
when I think about the opportunity that we have to make a difference, when I think about the opportunity that we have to save lives, I think that in many respects, we're long overdue to take this action um, on maternal related deaths, particularly in communities of color, because the majority of these deaths are preventable. Tell us again what's included in the Momnibus Act, Jamila. So the Momnibus Act is, um, you know, the Black Maternal Health Momnibus is a comprehensive package. It actually includes 12 individual bills that address everything from maternal vaccinations to the social determinants of health to the climate impacts um, on pregnancy um, to data. Another issue that we were talking about in terms of, of those maternal mortality rates are ramping up funding and support um, to ensure adequate data measures across states. Um, when it comes to these issues. So it really is a comprehensive approach to addressing the maternal mortality crisis. Um, and so the, the legislation has been so significant, not only in, I think, how we talk about Black maternal health in this country, but also as we conceptualize what we need in order to adequately address the issue. Yeah. So it's still a bill now, but the Century Foundation created a tracker for that piece of legislation, right? Yes, absolutely. It is still a bill. Um, we have created a tracker, um, and it can be found on our website, tcf.org. Um, and I will say, too, that, you know, while we have the Black Maternal Health Monibus Act, um, myself, along with other advocates in the field, also worked to include investments from the Momnibus and the Build Back Better Act that was passed in the House months ago. And we know that there are ongoing conversations about the next reconciliation package both in the House and Senate, and we're working to maintain those investments um, in whatever iteration um, comes out of, of that chamber. Yeah. And again, this is this is shrouded, of course, in a new light, right, with the fall of Roe v. Wade. So yes. do you think that should reframe future conversations then of access to maternal health care, especially when it comes to women of color? Well, those of us in the reproductive justice space have, have always talked about you know, the importance of maintaining and ensuring access to um, compassionate abortion care as part of the broader spectrum of reproductive justice, along with, you know, maternal health as well. Um, so for us, this is nothing new, right? But I do think that it is an important moment where we are hearing more decision makers um, recognize and talk about the connection between, you know, what the fall of Roe is going to mean for our burgeoning, you know, maternal health crisis in this country. It's certainly not going to help us um, better the, the situation for moms in this country when it comes to their maternal health um, when, you know, access to abortion has been banned. And so it is certainly cause for alarm. And again, you know, as we've mentioned throughout the program that, you know, both the ban um, on abortion as well as, you know, some of the challenges we're seeing in terms of maternity care are going to fall hardest on black women. Jamila Taylor is the Director of Healthcare Reform and Senior Fellow at the Century Foundation. Thank you for joining us, Jamila. Thank you for having me. All right, we'll turn now to Dr. Candace Robinson, Medical Director of the Bureau for Maternal, Infant, Child, and Adolescent Health at the Chicago Department of Public Health. Welcome to Reset, Dr. Robinson. Good morning. Thank you for having me. So uh, you've been listening along to to the conversation here. Talk to us about the uh, the disparity in maternal mortality between black and white Chicagoans. Where are the numbers right now? 
Yeah, so we have actually looked at this data specific to Chicago, and in 2019, we produced a a maternal mortality and morbidity report. And what we found is here in Chicago, our non-Hispanic black women are six times more likely to die in either during or within that year after pregnancy than non-Hispanic white women here in Chicago. You said six times more likely? Six times more likely here in Chicago in, in that report. Yes. Yes. What what action was taken then to, to respond to that? That's a very striking statistic. Yes, that is a striking statistic. And I think, you know, in the time since that report is published, we've seen a lot of action um, in both here locally, but then I think we've also seen a lot of action at the state level, and we've seen things happening at the national level. Um, first, I think we've seen a lot of attention given to this issue that we had not seen before. And I think that's been the first step towards making changes um, that can help with this issue. You know, this issue is a very complex and there are a lot of factors that both factor into maternal mortality in general, but also into this very stark disparity that we see um, for for our black women uh, versus uh, white women. Yeah. You know, here in, yeah, I was going to say, what are, what are the factors? What are the factors from what you've seen? Yeah, you know, I think there are multiple factors. Um, you know, access to care is all, is very important, um, certainly while pregnant, but also in that postpartum period. Um, we know that, you know, there are social determinants of health that are also a factor uh, in in health outcomes for, for women here in the U.S. Um, and, you know, chronic conditions that are influenced by those social determinants of health as well. So this is a multifactorial process between care and social determinants of health. All of these things um, factor into uh, these outcomes for women. Last year, Illinois passed something called the 1115 waiver. Can you explain what that is? Yes. So the 1115 waiver is a waiver that expanded postpartum Medicaid coverage for women. And this is really important. It actually took coverage from 60 days, which was the standard, to 12 months postpartum. Um, And that really allows, uh, you know, a strengthening of that care for mothers, um, really aiming at allowing women to seek care in that time period postpartum. You know, the Illinois actually did a um, maternal morbidity and mortality report, and they found that a third of pregnancy-related deaths occurred more than two months after pregnancy. So it's really important that mothers have access to care beyond those 60 days postpartum, and that's what this waiver allows. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think it is also really important and aimed at reducing, you know, those rates of maternal morbidity and mortality or illness and death, um, including those disparities that we see for black women during this postpartum period. Yeah. And uh, last month, Mayor Lightfoot pledged $500,000 of city funds to uh, to keep Chicago a safe haven for abortion and reproductive care. What does that mean, Dr. Robinson, for, for the health inequities that we are talking about right now? 
So those funds will, you know, of course, go to support transportation, lodging, um, safe and necessary reproductive, obstetric and gynecologic care, and follow-up services. Um, so we know that, you know, here in Chicago and in Illinois, we, you know, women will continue to have access uh, to these reproductive services. Um, and these funds will, of course, continue to be available and uh, impact that availability of care. What else are you all doing to to narrow the gap in in maternal mortality between black and and white Chicagoans? Well, here in Chicago and the Chicago Department of Public Health, we have a program that called Family Connect Chicago. Um, And our program now is in four pilot hospitals, but we're actually looking to expand this and we're working to expand this to all of our birthing hospitals over the next year. This program provides in-home nurse visits for postpartum women to evaluate the physical health of the mom and the baby, but also to do a needs assessment for that mom and that family and connect in the resources. We know that this postpartum period is a very vulnerable time for moms, for their families, for their infants. And so this program seeks to really connect the mom and their family to the resources that they need during this very vulnerable period. Um, So we're looking to have this program expanded to all 15 uh, birthing hospitals here over the next year. This program also has a large community alignment piece where we work with the community, the organizations in the community to help provide those resources for families. And then I think it's important to note that there are a lot of partners working in this space. You know, there is a Chicago Collaborative on Maternal Health, Illinois Maternal Health Task Force, March of Dimes, and countless others who are working in this space. And many of them specifically focusing on communities um, where additional resources for maternal care are needed. Um, And so, you know, Chicago Department of Public Health also sits at the table with these partners, helping to identify gaps and identifying ways to fill those gaps for maternal health needs. Dr. Candace Robinson is a medical director at the Chicago Department of Public Health. CDPH is hosting an Instagram Live about Black maternal health tonight at 6 Dr. Robinson, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, you know, these events that keep coming up, instead of just reacting, dealing with them one at a time and being shocked each time we have another event that surfaces that we that is brought to our attention, we need to function from the position of an analysis that clarifies we are in a total system structure of racism, white supremacy, and that is why we are seeing the kinds of behaviors from individuals, be it Donald Sterling or be it um, George Zimmerman or any of the other cases that come to our attention. There is a reason that these cases exist. And I want to also talk about, in this case, they talked about mental health, but also gun control. And we have to begin to understand, I say you can't understand the gun mania if you don't understand racism, white supremacy. The gun is the answer to conscious and or subconscious, the answer, the response to the quite collective feeling they can be genetically annihilated 
by black genetic material. And the gun is a great equalizer. I encourage everybody to get a copy of the ISIS papers and read. So talk to me about this ruling from the Supreme Court, the impact of it. How momentous is it? Well, I think it continues a trend that started in 2008 with the Supreme Court recognizing gun rights, the rights guaranteed in the Second Amendment as a personal right, not a right connected to a well-regulated militia, as the first clause in the amendment states. Um, That's a revolutionary decision in itself in 2008, and today's decision is just a furtherance of that, and it uh, will be used in the future to knock down gun control laws across the United States. So in essence, it's saying that this doesn't really have a bearing on the Second Amendment? What it says is if the, there are two parts to the Second Amendment, which reads a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of the free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. That first clause, a well-regulated militia, is now, and it has been since Heller was decided in 2008, largely perfunctory, not even uh, read into the Constitution. Now the entire emphasis is on the second half of the amendment, and that right is a personal right, meaning that individuals cannot be restricted in their ability to protect themselves using a firearm. So reasonably, I could bring my firearm into work? Right, and so here comes the question. Like, I teach at a university that is a gun-free zone. Well, those limitations where an individual is not allowed to bring a gun to our campus, will those be upheld? I have not had a chance to read all 135 pages of this ruling, but I have a feeling those type of limitations, limitations on place and limitations on which individuals are allowed to have a firearm are going to be under challenge in the future. I know you just said you haven't read all 135 pages of the ruling, but is there anything else that stands out to you? A couple points. One, this is another indication, and you're going to see another series of cases released tomorrow, and as one of our cases released Tuesday. The country is divided, is growing, and continues to grow between red states and blue states. And we see that on the Supreme Court. If you look at the difference between the majority opinion in this case, written by conservative Clarence Thomas, and the dissenting opinion written by the soon-to-be-retired um, liberal justice, Stephen Breyer, they are talking past each other. They're not even discussing really the same constitutional principles as each other. And that's an indication of our politics right now in the United States. And for the Supreme Court in specific, and for our country in general, that's a very, very bad thing. Anything else overall? Let me just say one more thing. Is why, why do we have so many important cases before the Supreme Court? And that's the result that we have a dysfunctional federal government. We have a federal government right now, at least since the last decade, that can't solve problems. We either have the Republicans or the Democrats denying either side any chance to pass legislation. And the way our system is set up by the Founding Fathers is it's designed to force compromise. And if compromise doesn't occur, the government can't act. So these types of issues, gun issues, uh, religious rights issues, get forced into the courts, and then the courts, which is becoming more political, has to decide these issues, and that is clearly against the design of the Founding Fathers. So what's the solution to this? If I knew that answer, I would be writing books right now and be appearing (laughs) on national television.
Last December, the U.S. Surgeon General issued a rare public advisory warning of a, quote, devastating mental health crisis among American teens. Symptoms of depression and anxiety for children and adolescents have doubled during the COVID-19 pandemic. But special correspondent Kat Wise reports on why accessing mental health treatment is so difficult for so many. And a warning, these next segments include explicit references to suicide. My name is Chelsea. I'm with Youth Village's Mobile Crisis. I'm just going to ask you some questions, okay? Have you ever tried to hurt yourself? Any self-harm, like cutting, burning, or scratching? For counselors at this youth crisis hotline in Knoxville, Tennessee, it's a busy morning during another busy week. Is he on any medications? The hotline averages more than a thousand calls a month. How often does this behavior occur? It's run by Youth Villages, a nonprofit founded in 1986 that works with children who have serious emotional, mental, and behavioral health issues in 23 states. I know mom called us about, about some concerns. I just want to make sure that you're okay. So have the homicidal threats been since all this happened or was that prior? Raquel Schutze is the organization's program director for crisis services in Tennessee. This past fiscal year has been our highest volume on record. What do you make of that? Kids are hurting. Their families are struggling and our, our community is um, having trouble meeting the need. That need, which was already growing prior to the pandemic, is hitting families across the nation. 70% of U.S. counties don't have a child psychiatrist, and more than 60% of youth who report having severe major depression are not receiving any mental health treatment. I didn't know where to go. I didn't know who to call. When she tried to hurt herself, I took her to the hospital. It was all I knew to do. Peggy Patrick has been caring for her 16-year-old granddaughter, Jackie, since she was a baby in the rural town of New Tazewell, Tennessee. She says around the age of 12, Jackie started changing from an outgoing and friendly child to withdrawn and often depressed. I thought hormones, you know, and I even told her that. Guess I tried to convince her that this was a phase. Was there a moment you can recall when you know, you thought, we need some help here. This this is not, you know, normal. I do. She started cutting herself. She uh, attempted suicide. And when she would attempt suicide, of course, I'd take her to the hospital. Jackie's story is unfortunately becoming more common nationwide. Emergency room visits for suspected suicide attempts are up 51% for adolescent girls since 2019. And one in three high school students report having persistent feelings of sadness or hopelessness. Has it been difficult to find um, mental health help for, for Jackie? Good mental health, yes, it's been hard. I had a list of people that I thought would help her. Uh, a lot of them was too far away for us. We couldn't get there. A lot of them wouldn't take the insurance. I mean, you're helpless. 
Over the last four years, the family struggled to find a consistent therapist for Jackie. Most were nearly an hour away by car. And treatment options in the area are limited for teenagers and often can be difficult to access. Jackie told us she once waited a month for a bed to open in a long-term inpatient facility. Nationally, the number of residential treatment facilities for youth has fallen by 30% since 2012. I am a very bad overthinker. So I'm all the time thinking of worst scenarios that could go wrong and how things might just just end badly in any way possible. Jackie says she's speaking out about her mental health in hopes of helping other teenagers. I mean, I was always bullied as a kid. I don't have many friends now as it is. I never got invited to do stuff with my friends. You know, even if they did consider me as a friend, I didn't get invited to, to go hang out that weekend or to go to the pool or to the park or anything like that. So I kind of had like a fear of missing out. And also there was always the stigma of like, you know, on TikTok and stuff like that, there's the pretty girl image. And I feel like that takes a toll on a lot of people. Can you, can you tell me about sort of what happened in, in those days? Well, there it either A, ended up in me self-harming or me trying to kill myself again. So, and those are very scary times. How many times did you attempt suicide? Um, probably about four. Mm. After her most recent attempt earlier this year, Jackie was connected to a Youth Village's crisis team. She was then placed into what's known as their Intercept program and paired with family intervention specialist Samantha Davis-Mize. I'm going to let you be the driver on this one. Okay, so for my calming jar, I think I want to make it my happy place. Okay, so we've got a happy place. Yes. Okay. Every day, Davis Mize visits families like Jackie's across this sprawling section of East Tennessee. Meeting Jackie for the first time and coming into the home and just sitting with her, it was, she just looked like she had a long, she had walked a long journey. She was tired and she was just, she was crying out for, hey, I need some help. Youth Villages says the Intercept program works with about 11,000 families in more than a dozen states. Um, I had the psychoeducation on trauma and stress responses with the family. The goal? to bring mental health services directly to the homes of families who need it most. These services include visits three times a week from specialists like Davis Mize and regular consultations with not only at-risk youth, but also parents and guardians. A lot of parents have never had to deal with this before. This is new. Sydney Earle is a clinical supervisor for the Intercept program. We work with a family in their home right where they're comfortable and identifying the root of whatever the problems may be and figuring out how to collaboratively solve those together. One of the first steps for families, locking everything up in their homes that could be potentially dangerous. So this is your lockbox? Yeah. And this is where everything I need is all down in here. When I need to peel the potatoes or get a pair of scissors or I have to unlock the box, and I have another one over there. It's got some stuff in it. But this Peggy Patrick good. admits this initially felt a little bit invasive. But it's worth it. It's worth it to keep your kids safe. Let me just get this situated in our system, and then I'll get some information from you, okay? Is he currently safe right now? Youth Villages funds its crisis hotline through the Tennessee Department of Mental Health. And for many families, like Jackie's, these intensive in-home services are funded through the state's Medicaid program. Today, Jackie says the help has come at a crucial moment and that her mental health is now in a far better place. 
eventually I was, I gave myself the opportunity to say I want help. And I feel like I finally opened my eyes and said that I wanted something better for me and I wanted a better life for me. Jackie says she's also speaking out to help parents and guardians know how to talk to their kids about mental health. I feel like every parent needs to listen to their kid extensively. I feel like a big question that needs to be asked is, are you really okay? Not, are you doing okay? Or is there anything I can do for you? No, are you really okay? And I think that more parents need to have a sit down conversation with their kid and make it known that they care and that they're there to listen. Advice that now seems more urgent than ever. For the PBS NewsHour, I'm Kat Wise in New Tazewell, Tennessee. Ben and Sarah, an 11-year-old boy was biking around Deep River with his friend on Monday when they were confronted by a man and he pushed him off his bike. One of those first encounters with him happened on this sidewalk across the street from us. The family believes it was racially motivated and they say that sixth grader is now afraid to leave his home. This video shows 11-year-old Deep River student Daniel Duncan pushed off his bike to the ground Monday. A prior video that day shows 48-year-old Jameson Chapman angrily confronting Duncan. Where did you grow up? Did you grow up in Connecticut? No. No. You didn't. So get the f*** out of my town. He asks the sixth grader where he grew up and to get out of his town. Rage. I could not contain my anger. Mom Desiree Dominique says she went into shock when shown the video and fears this type of behavior towards her children will continue. I feel very upset. I feel anger. I feel sadness. I feel a sense of uh, powerlessness. She says this isn't the first time her kids have been targeted in Deep River. Her other son was shot with a pellet gun earlier this month, and she says they're verbally attacked at school. The issue of racism is very prevalent in this area. I see it every day. This happened just weeks after a message was left on a town sign with derogatory terms towards people of color. First Selectman Angus McDonald says it's unacceptable. This is a safe place, and we are going to continue to work to make it more welcoming. Than it already is. He says these actions do not represent the vast majority of Deep River. This is something that we all need to address and should start at home. Dominique says she encourages her children to stay positive and know they do belong in Deep River. I remind them of who they are. I remind them that they are not their skin tone. I remind them that they are not their body. The first selectman says that they're planning public forums and workshops to address how to handle this type of inappropriate behavior here in Deep River. The mom says that these types of changes need to be made on an individual, a community, and a social level. Live in Deep River, Tony Black, Fox 61 News. Okay, thank you, Tony. One quick question before you go. Do we know what happened before that incident? Are we, do we have any clues about what led up to that confrontation? Yeah, so uh, Duncan, uh, he told police, and this is according to the report that we got, that they were biking around and that Chapman had actually bumped into his friend and then started to raise his voice at them, and then obviously that led to what you saw in those videos. Hitler had the supreme fascist state. And what was he worried about in Europe and in Germany? He was worried about white genetic annihilation.
A 101-year-old German man has become the oldest person ever found guilty of crimes linked to the Holocaust. Josef Schutz was convicted of being a guard at a concentration camp north of Berlin during the Nazi era. He had denied the charge, saying he spent most of the Second World War as a farm labourer. Journalist William Glucroft, who's based in Berlin, has been following the story. Josef Schutz has been convicted of being a camp guard at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp. It's a concentration camp. 60, 70 kilometers north of Berlin. It was mainly a labor camp, but it was uh, many thousands of people died there. And Scholz has been convicted of assisting, knowingly, willingly assisting in those murders of camp inmates uh, back during during the war, during the Holocaust, between 1942 and 1945. Um, he, of course, denied uh, that he was involved at all. Um, but there was ample evidence suggesting uh, that he was indeed a camp guard at the Sachsenhausen concentration camp and participated in or was complicit in the murders of more than 3,500 people. So how did he come to be arrested and charged? Germany has a special office, a special prosecution office they've had for decades pursuing Nazi criminals, pursuing criminals that perpetrated the Holocaust. For much of that time, it was pursuing high-level officers, high-level decision-makers. But as the years have gone on, as they've prosecuted more and more people, they've gone down the list, so to speak, and they've been going to camp guards, they've been going to assistants, they've been going to secretaries. Uh, in the last 10 years or so, you've seen several camp guards of various camps uh, all around the concentration and death camp system uh, getting brought to court in their 90s, in their early 100s. And this prosecution office says it's going to leave no stone unturned. And until the very last Nazi uh, has died and left this earth, they will continue prosecuting uh, these cases. And it's a five-year sentence. Where will it, it be served? What actually will happen to him now? That's unclear. He may ultimately not serve any of it. Um, the, the, he was given a five-year sentence, but that could be suspended. Uh, he also said that he will appeal. He's absolutely denying his involvement and his role uh, in the concentration camp, in the Zaxthausen concentration camp. And while on appeal, he may not serve that sentence. And we don't know how that appeal could go through, if at all. And we also don't know how, how long uh, nature itself will allow him to be remaining on this earth. Uh, so he may very well die before, at 101 years old, it's very likely that he could die before he were even to serve any of it. Is this the last of the Nazi trials? It sounded like there might be some more still to come. People are getting on in years, and every, but every time you think you've seen the last one, they seem to find one more person to put on trial. That was William Glucroft in Berlin. Lock her up. That's right. Yes, that's right. Lock her up. I'm going to tell you what. It's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. At 11 tonight, the family of Emmett Till wants authorities to make an arrest in his lynching that happened nearly seven decades ago after a team discovered an unserved warrant in the basement of a Mississippi courthouse charging a white woman in his kidnapping. The warrant dated August 29th of 1955, names Carolyn Bryant Dunham as Mrs. Roy Bryant as the kidnapper. Emmett Till was abducted from a relative's home, killed and dumped into a river after Dunham accused him of making improper advances to her in a store. A witness said the 14-year-old whistled at her his accused killers were tried and acquitted, but admitted to the killing later in an interview. 
Dunham is now in her 80s and most recently lived in North Carolina. The Till family is calling for her arrest. The district attorney's office that would oversee the case declined comment on this story. Context of white supremacy. Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Saturday, July 2nd, 2022. So I have been told. This is our weekly compensatory call-in. Dial in if you have thoughts, observations, suggestions to share the number 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. The number again, 720-716-7300. The code 564-943-POUND. Press star 61 if you would like to participate. Get my PSA in at the beginning and end. So as I have been told, this is a holiday weekend uh, all the way through, I guess, Tuesday, I reckon. So my suggestion would be, as usual, sobriety would be best. If you got to hang out, the barbecue, whatever it's going to be, they're having a a reunion of some sort, maybe, whatever, Uh, sobriety. Best way to go. You got to consume whatever it is. My suggestion would be get wherever this is going to be, wherever this event is being held, and you're there for the night. This is a relative's place or whatever it is, but I would not do any driving, being out and about, especially if this is in an area where you reside in an area with a high population of dark people. They will likely have sobriety checkpoints out perhaps all the way through next weekend. So I would be very mindful if you're going to go out and, you know, participate in all of that. Think of that in advance. If I'm not going to be sober, which is best. Hey, I am parking it for the evening. You do not want to be out on the road and then have to make, you know, potentially life-saving decisions in a manner of seconds and you've had a taste. We're still on the plantation. Racists do not take holidays. Anywho, compensatory call-in. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. Up, oh, Man, I'm so disgruntled since it's the holiday. I do not do like plugs uh, advertisements for anybody because uh, we don't have friends and homies of the cows or anything like that. However, sleep is very important. Uh, I'm going to see if we can do some programs about that over the summertime. Uh, they just had a report, the New York Times, talking about evidence suggesting that not getting enough rest may have a long term detrimental impact on health, particularly brain functioning. Proper sleep is so important. It's not, they were saying basically in the study uh, that you can't uh, think the tacky phrasing, catch up on it. I'll catch up on it. They said, no, you don't catch up on rest, not sleeping, especially over long term. Studies may suggest can be very harmful to proper brain health. 
get your rest. So all of that to say, uh, having or investing in your betting can be great for sleep. That was something that I just, I was never like, let me go hang out in, you know, bed, bath and beyond, you know, get some new fluffy pillows. That was never uh, Gus T. But I think it was after the flood or so, or just before, it was just before the flood. I said, man, I'm going to invest that I can have really comfortable bedding. It makes a huge difference. So uh, I've had uh, bamboo sheets on my bed for about five years or so they are amazing they are so soft they literally get better with age every time you watch them they get a little bit softer uh, they have effects beyond just being soft for this time of year uh, in this part of the world where it's summertime and hot they are the best or one of the best options uh, they have natural uh, cooling properties uh, to keep you from overheating at night uh, and they help to keep you warm uh, when it's cold in the wintertime, I'm a huge fan. I've had them, as I said, for five years. They're the best sheets uh, ever, ever, ever. Uh, I do not like doing product plugs. However, this I at least can say that this company, they did do right by me. Like the product that I got was damaged and I ended up sending back as a long, cumbersome process. And they ended up giving me all of the products replaced for free. So they at least have done correct by Gus T. So they have many types of bamboo sheets. Uh, Caroloha, C-A-R-I-L-O-H-A.com. C-A-R-I-L-O-H-A.com. So they have bamboo bedding. They have uh, like pajamas and all types of things, but bedding, bedding. They probably, the pajamas probably are nice too, but bedding, the bedding sheets their mattresses are probably good too i haven't tried one of those yet but maybe to come but the sheets are amazing the duvet and the duvet uh, duvet cover amazing year-round amazing like i absolutely i had them for years now and as i said they just get better uh with age they are kind of expensive bamboo sheets in general bamboo bedding in general is expensive they do have a lifetime warranty that they honor so it's a, as I, it is an investment in quality rest. It's in fact they're so comfortable, literally, especially in the wintertime. Oh my gosh, they're so comfortable, you will not want to get out of bed. That's with the sheets and with the duvet cover. You will not want to get out of bed. It is that comfortable, and the sheets are so soft. I remember the flood happened, so I've been sleeping on those for like six months flood happened we got booted out you know f temporary flood housing those sheets felt like sandpaper and i'm not even saying they were like you know walmart sheets or what have you they may have been great or whatever but they felt like total sandpaper but they have a 30 percent sale for the so-called holiday weekend i had told other cows listeners about these sheets uh, and that if you catch them for the holiday because i think that's when i got my set way back when it was so-called holiday weekend so i took advantage of the big discount so i didn't have to pay the huge sticker price but they are well worth the investment caroloha.com i'm so against product plugs but this is for quality sleep quality sleep now, listener-supported counter-racist radio. Visit the blog racism-notes.blogspot.com. 
racism-notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button is in the top right corner. Uh, directly beneath the PayPal button, you will see links for Cash App, Venmo, PayPal, uh, the Cash App address, cash.app forward slash dollar sign the cows enormous gratitude to all of the listeners uh, who have nabbed an item or five uh, over our 13 years hopefully we have been worthy of your time and energy one thing I will say right there I was going to say about my wish list man I went to Green Lake with my hammock for the first time today I normally have been at Richmond Beach with my hammock but I switched it up today went to uh, Green Lake and read and hung out with the ducks and was ate cherries and blueberries galore while relaxing in my hammock at Green Lake and then after I read there for hours I switched and went to Richmond Beach where I am now to watch the sun and enjoy Seattle is one of the few places that I know where you could sit at the lake I'm bored let's go to the beach alright and that's just driving to a different part of the city or even I'm bored with this beach let's go to a different beach and then a different beach you could do that for like the whole day just kick it like an hour and a half at each beach I think you could visit like 10 great locations throughout the Seattle area anyway went to Richmond Beach to kick it everybody should get a hammock they are so great like it would encourage you to go out to hike if you have you know great parks or beaches lakes all of the above uh, in your area man you can go read you could just go sit and meditate you could go take a nap I did all of the above today I started off I sat and I just looked at the ducks and the geese as they were kind of going by doing their thing. I said, all right, I have to read because we have a program tomorrow. So I have to be serious, I have to read. So I sat down to read and I did read for maybe 10 minutes. It's like, oh, man, I'm a little tired. Sleep, a little tired. Took a nap, dozed off, got a good 40 minute nap or so. I woke up, read for two hours and 10 minutes. Great at that point. I was all energized after I had my nap in. Woke up, the sun came out, got nice and warm, sat, looked at the water. I love Green Lake. And even with the hammock, they have codes for the hammock. Codify everything, right? That's what Fuller says. Codify the hammock. I noted, now I take note, now that I have mine, I take note of how other people have their hammock uh, how they secure it most of the code is about safety many codes many many codes are about safety with the hammock since you are suspended it's hey let's make sure that if you do fall you do not kill yourself crack your skull open one of them is you're not supposed to have the hammock once you get in it you should not be any higher than 45 centimeters from the ground I noted a number of people have theirs higher than that. I think they, and it's even specific, like they have a code about the optimal angle uh, for the ha- uh, for the line that's securing the hang- uh, the hammock, the optimal angle between that line and the tree or whatever post it is that you're using to anchor. 
Uh, and just to have more tension in the line, that's something I notice as well. Like if you just put it up in any old kind of way, it won't have a lot of support where you can really be in it and be comfortable and relax. Like they have codes about everything, how to make sure that you don't get cold while you're in it and to make sure that you have the most comfort. Uh, it is amazing. I even added on to make sure that you don't lose uh, any of the uh, carboners uh, that you need to secure it to make sure it's in place. Codify everything. And safety, again, safety is at the, the core of most of the codes for the hammock so you don't you know kill yourself while you're relaxing at the beach or lake or wherever you happen to be anyway love my hammock cannot encourage it enough it supports enough weight you could have multiple people uh in your hammock go out and do some reading or what have you while the weather is nice get your sunshine and vitamin d in in fact i can even give you a quick story i was at richmond beach this was a couple days ago black male came and sat next to me which is always like e could be you know a problem but he was just really happy that it was sunny because it's been like the coldest summer ever coldest spring ever worst weather in a 12 month period since I've been in Seattle uh, but this day it was warm I think it was like 70 75 78 degrees like warmest day of the calendar year I think so far pretty easily 78 degrees so he's sitting out and he says man I love it. So warm, like we're black. We need the sun. Get that vitamin D in and blah, blah, blah. I'm thinking, okay, he's constructive so far. I hope he doesn't say too much more. Uh, and at the end, I was reading too. I wasn't just sitting, hanging out. I was actually trying to read programs to prepare for it. So he sits down and he says, man, it's been so cold. And it has been. It's been so cold and rainy and cloudy. It's been no sun. Like, you know, I actually wished for a heat wave. And I said, oh, uh, were you here last year, this time, when we had that 110-degree day uh, in the heat wave that lasted three days? He said, oh, yes, I was here. I did not like that. <laughs> he was so defensive. I was like, yeah, because I do not, uh, I would not wish for that at all. Like, I wouldn't care if it stayed cold the entire summer like I could deal with that because I had even thought of that before he said it like I when I was complaining myself about the cold weather here and I said well this time last year it was 110 degrees so what would you rather take and at first I was kind of thinking well it was and I said oh yeah that was the deadliest weather event in the history of Washington State we have active volcanoes here earthquakes that was the deadliest weather event. So drunk logic. You don't need any sense. You do not want the heat wave. Words are important, which he immediately recognized. Anywho, hammocks are amazing. Wish list. I no longer have a hammock there because I'm enjoying it. But other items are there. Gusty Renegade at Amazon.com. Much obliged for the folks who have NAB an item or three you should get yourself a hammock if you do not have one they're so light you could toss it in the like trunk of your vehicle or backpack or wherever they're so light and portable and it will really encourage you to get out and enjoy alrighty so I've pitched two products next so we will be here uh, tomorrow back to white guests only thank goodness even though Dr. Dobson was pretty constructive even some listeners said so as well 
uh, our guest for tomorrow, Dr. Neil Krauss, white man. He wrote a book about racism in Buffalo. It's called Race, Neighborhoods, and Community Power, Buffalo Politics, 1934 to 1997. Racism is every page. All this book is about they won't allow black people to move to this part of Buffalo. Rick James and his family, they won't allow them to move to this part of Buffalo. They won't allow them to get jobs. Uh, just everything is racism, white supremacy at every turn in the book. I gave you the years 1934 to 1997. As soon as I got this book, the first thing I did was turn to the index does he mention the 22 caliber killer Joseph G. Christopher? No. How on earth do you write a book about racism, white supremacy in Buffalo, New York from 1934 to 1997 and not have at least one paragraph about, oh yeah, that white guy who grew up here whose dad was upset about him riding the bus to the integrated schools and killed all those black people here, carved out two of their hearts and everything, had a march, 5,000 people downtown. Jesse Jackson came to town. The president is talking about this. A federal task force, part of a House subcommittee, House Select subcommittee, same type of thing that they're having now about January 6th. They had about Atlanta, Buffalo. How do you not include it? one paragraph about, oh, yeah, that was a big part of Buffalo history and racism, white supremacy. That will be one enormous question. And I mean, like if this was grading academic setting, I've been thinking like that's a it either a two letter grade deduction automatically like it could be flawless best thing ever no mention of Joseph Christopher either that's a two letter grade deduction or an automatic F I'm gonna have to ask him that tomorrow too because I mean Jesus Christ man like are you serious 5,000 people he does mention Cynthia Wiggins super important I will give a, a quick snippet on Cynthia Wiggins just because I think this is important I didn't know who Cynthia Wiggins was uh, before uh, I read the first part of his book, he even starts like the first paragraph of the book is Cynthia Wiggins. So this is from the Globe and Mail living on free on the frayed edges of urban racism. See those metaphors, the frayed edges. What does that mean? Some people love the edge city. Others revile it. All sides agree, however, that this coarse-grained landscape of house farms, office parks, and mini-malls is unfinished. It needs history and it needs monuments to make the accretion of its stories visible. Chictagua, New York is a classic edge city that has prospered despite the obvious debility of Buffalo, the mother city it borders, and because of the traffic accident... These are not accidents. We talked about that word before. And because of the traffic accident that killed Cynthia Wiggins of Buffalo, it now has a story worthy of a monument. Cynthia Wiggins was st struck 
and killed by a dump truck on December 14 while crossing Walden Avenue on her way to work at the Walden Galleria Mall in Chictagua. She was 17, a single mother, black, and she worked in the food court. She commuted across the color and class bar that separates downtown Buffalo from its suburbs on the number six bus of the Niagara Frontier Transportation Authority. But the number six bus doesn't stop at the Walden Galleria. Transit officials, whites, had proposed such a stop in 1988, but they say that the mall's owner, Pyramid Kaz of Syracuse, New York, flatly refused to accommodate it. Pyramid was willing to provide stops for buses from nearby suburbs, but specifically ruled out a stop from the bus from from Buffalo's Sycamore Street that intersects with Jefferson, where uh, the shooting took place. So Cynthia Wiggins and so many like her, the mainly black Buffaloians who worked McJobs at the mall, disembarked on the far side of Seven Lane Walden Avenue, crossed without the aid of sidewalks or a traffic light, and walked 275 meters through a parking lot to work. She was hit by a dump truck, but no one in Buffalo is fooled about the real cause of her death. This is a divided city metaphor whose suburbs refuse to welcome an extension of the inner city's light rail system. I've heard that before where barroom talk refers to the proposal as the burglar express. As many local leaders recognized immediately, Cynthia Wiggins was killed by racism. make it plain I will stop there but that's how the book does start so I think that is important but man how do you not mention Joseph G. Christopher we'll be here tomorrow with that and many other questions the history of white supremacy racism in Buffalo and again how all of this and I mean thoroughly explains how a white race soldier could easily predict where the Negroes will be in Buffalo lots of deliberate white planning went into that over decades let's see uh, before we get to the listeners anything I will touch on the only there are many things I took many notes we'll get to the callers the only thing I will touch on that segment about cryptocurrency and black people if you don't understand white supremacy racism what it is how it works everything else will confuse you many aspects of that report Adrian Ma I believe is a white male hosting the report he says when he talks about all the different types so called redlining and uh, he talks about the uh, predatory loans that were made to black people in the 2000s and then wiped out lots of their income and what have you for black people, non-white people. And he says, then on top of it all, add the microaggressions, or in some cases, the Uber aggressions, a lot of black customers have faced while banking. I don't even know what that means. I was like, do you mean like being mistreated while doing a ride share or what? What? What are you talking about? Do you mean going to the bank and they have a code where they say we don't make loans to Negras? Is that what you do? Or are you talking about the one where you go to the bank and they say, oh, well, this Negra says 
that he has a check and he's holding the check and he has identification, but I mean, it's a Negro, so I mean, he could have stolen it from anybody, you know, stolen the fingerprints and all. So we're going to have to get a blood sample and urine sample and genetic material from his grandmother and a few other pieces of identification before we even think about it. Is that what you're talking about? Is that an uber aggression? Words. And then it continues. So then they have Tanya Evans. I'm just going to read exactly from the transcript what was said. Now, again, one moron consistently says these metaphors are an enormous problem. It should be about specifics and details, especially now we're talking about cryptocurrency. Uh Oh, unregulated new form of financing details. What are you talking about? Don't mystify me. Tanya Evans, directly from the transcript, she says, even as a black queer woman in this space, what opportunities can we have if we lean into the language of the future of money question? And that's what I think this space presents the opportunity for us to do as black Americans who are going to move the needle and hopefully stay ahead of the curve now this is a law professor at Penn State right on Jerry Sandusky one anytime somebody like the first thing you're coming to talk to me about anything fire safety swim lessons maternal health uh, breastfeeding cryptocurrency drones anything the first thing out of your mouth now I got to let you know that I am about some queer LGBTQ we can almost fade that I mean really I listened obviously I read the transcript but I mean really why is that got to be at the front of the conversation I thought we were talking about what does that have to do with cryptocurrency even if you were so called straight what does that have to do with cryptocurrency? I thought we were talking. How did we end up talking about sex? We were supposed to be talking about cryptocurrency. That's what we said. That alone already the suspicion. Man, <laughs> you were talking about an investment. If this is the pitch, you already lost it. No, thanks. You might as well get to the refreshments. Where is the lemonade at? They got any water? Now, then we get to the rest of it. You're coming and talking to black people. Serious. It should not be all this jargon. Move the needle. Lean in ahead of the curve. Come on, man. It should be about details and specifics about why this is constructive. Even when they talk to Samson Williams. Now, this is a black male they started with at the beginning. Said the white guy on the job told him, hey, get on LinkedIn. Get good socks. I don't know how that translated to Hello Kitty. And then get yourself some cryptocurrency. He said he, you know, didn't mess it up. I guess he made a little bit of money, but then he sold his stock for the most part. Got out of it, said, hey, this is not, this is, he didn't say this is going to help us end racism. He said, is this going to help us end unchecked capitalism? If you don't understand white supremacy racism, the problem is not unchecked capitalism the reason that he said hey 
even with the cryptocurrency, I sold most of what I had, got out of it, made a few bucks, but I'm still a black male. Now, he said a black male in America. It would still be the same if you are a black male in Johannesburg, a black male in Paris, a black male in Italy, a black male in Belgium, China, wherever. It would just be a nigger either with a few more nickels, a few less nickels. Why is that? Is that because of unchecked capitalism? No, that's because of the system of white supremacy racism. Words are very important. Now, I did do a product plug for the Karaloha sheets. Now, Hello Kitty socks might be the best thing ever. I've never had any, so if people know, like Gusty, do not, you know, be out here <laughs> acting like you don't want to support Hello Kitty socks. They're the best thing ever. You can correct me on that. But in fact, what I thought was I've basically seen lots of females so-called uh, Asian females frequently wearing Hello Kitty paraphernalia, but maybe I'm confused. Anyway, uh, meta- I just read whole par- move the needle. We're talking about finances now ahead of the curve. Hmm. Specifics, words, are very important. Race race soldiers love this sort of jargon. If we're going to use these type of metaphors with that, oh man, we're going to stay ahead of the curve. We're going to include some diversity. We're going to move the needle. We're going to make progress and hope. We are going to bridge the racial divide. They love it. They will keep you confused and we'll have this problem for another 10,000 years. Details and specifics. Non-white people, we have been encouraged to talk like this for, I don't know, centuries. Uh, We are still learning, Gus T included, so sometimes we don't have logic to articulate our views. Always best. Be as accurate, as precise as you can with words for all of the cows programs that we could avoid metaphors much obliged again I reserve the right to immediately prompt call attention to those metaphors we should be thinking about what we're saying that is an extremely important component of attempted counter racism science the number again 720-716-7300 the code 564-943-POUND press star 61 if you would like to participate just that segment where they were talking about the, the black family attempted in Maryland where they said we were like the black Brady bunch I prefaced that segment with Jamie Foxx singing the theme song to the Brady bunch metaphor because he said similarly specifically we're like the black Brady bunch that is another component to those metaphors frequent I say the frequently invariably the metaphors are also conveying values of white supremacy you are not the black Brady but some fictitious white family they didn't even have a Negro butler on the show unless my memory is bad you are not the black Brady Bunch and why is that your reference for what your black attempted family is 
a white family that's not even real on a television. It's not even a family, a white television show. White is the is the value, is the reference point for everything. And those metaphors are already that's the way we think. That's the way that I think about our so-called family, where we both have these children, not biologically ours. Oh, yes, the Brady Bunch. And then it continued because he started very beginning. We're like the black Brady Bunch. He continued, said when his daughter came back home, no big deal. Financial crisis system of white supremacy, whatever. Uh, but he said, hey, I was working on my man cave in the basement, had my 100 inch television. I just said, they tell you, make sure you don't have that hammock more than 45 centimeters from the ground. He has a 100 inch television. Now, man, you thought the Brady Bunch had an impact on you before when it came out in the 70s on your little rinky dink black and white television with the antenna on a 13 inch Man, when Dylan Roof is on your screen at 100 inches, Matt Damon is on your screen at 100 inches, when you don't, and, 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 at 100 inches now, even for a so-called adult black person, that is an extraordinary amount of poison, brain trashing. Can you imagine a four-year-old and they have a 100-inch television in their residence? I'm pretty sure he hadn't seen the television show The Brady Bunch in years probably since he was a child so that means decades later this is his reference point for at least a certain type of family that is the end I said that's the impact of seeing a show on probably a 13 inch black and white screen nothing comparable to an HD probably 4k 100 inch screen get to see Peyton Gendron in high definition for the trial. Precious in between. Big Mama's house. Reading is more important than watching television. Folks who dialed in with a hand up, proceed. Good evening, Mabby Heard. Yes, sir. Yes, uh, good evening, and uh, thank you to the host, and uh, good evening to the uh, participants of the CALS program. Uh, I'd like to start my comments on the Idaho um, arrest of the uh, uh, the white supremacist militia. I'm not sure if they're just uh, gun owners or they're suspected uh, terrorists. Um, but one of the comments was made that um, those 
people are promoting uh, gun ownership or gun violence in ways that are um, objectionable to how the LBGTQP um, operate. Um, it seems to me that um, when I observe how the, uh, the those groups um, promote, one is uh, perhaps more subtle, uses uh, different mediums such as television, radio, uh, to promote their um, their ideals, uh, whereas the other group perhaps uses a, a slightly different medium, such as the Internet, to uh, gather recruits. Uh, but the, the goal is uh, still to uh, dominate um, non-white people. That's my observation. And... Um, the segment about the um, the women who uh, have childbirth issues where they um, may die or suffer ill health effects. Um, one, I think that's a very serious topic and one that uh, would necessitate a logical, deep thought uh, and uh, thorough examination, uh, but I uh, am um, a bit confused when they bring up uh, compassionate abortion or Roe versus Wade uh, in relation to uh, women receiving more positive outcomes due to childbirth. It seems as if um, that is... Uh, intermingled with that conversation inappropriately or it is not uh, thoroughly examined why that is um, brought up within that conversation. Maybe I don't uh, have a fuller understanding of it and that's you know very likely true, uh, but I suspect that that is um, uh, promoted to uh, black women um, more than it is to uh, not to to white women. Um, and one last comment on the uh, on the segments was the uh, the book countdown is very relevant to the reproductive health of uh, men and women. It would uh, be logical to examine the health effects of lifestyle, uh, how you, um, your diet, the things that are around you, the uh, environmental uh, negative impact on reproductive health, in addition to um, the way that it's currently being discussed. And uh, one last thing uh, is that uh, I have um, taken a suggestion that was made by one of the uh, uh, the participants of the program who drives for a living uh, to utilize the uh, hot logic. I'm not promoting this uh, specific um, product, but it has been very helpful in my um, profession driving. I'm able to bring along 
uh, food and put it in my um, uh, into the uh, charging device, and it heats the food up quite well. And uh, I am very appreciative of that advice because I probably would not have uh, come across that otherwise if I had not been listening to the uh, cows content. Uh, thank you, and uh, that's all I have to share for the evening. Man, you should be getting sponsorships, right? Like all the product placement in one program. My goodness. Uh, neutralizing workplace racism uh, every Friday. Uh, we talked about that. And those, because uh, they have lots of those type of portable devices that can uh, heat your food and little portable mini refrigerators where you can have it all <laughs> have, you know, uh, really be gourmet and have all of your food. But just talking about that so that you don't have to eat out you can minimize that if you're someone who does a lot of uh driving for a living uh we have a good number of listeners who do that uh you don't have to be eating out on giving racists opportunities to put things in our plate in our mouth so absolutely that way you can and that encourages you can do some of your own cooking prepare some healthy meals lots of fresh fruits vegetables take whatever you want bam have a nice healthy home-cooked meal at your leisure and greatly minimize all those chances for race soldiers to poison a taco bell we talking about that before Ah, no taco bell needed got my meal right here love it uh the as for the the segment they were talking about maternal health i think sometimes that gets branded under the genre of reproductive health and or reproductive rights so I could see where they might put that and in a system of white supremacy conflation is so prominent I can also see hey let's see if we can get these victims of white supremacy as opposed to thinking about this as an issue of racism let's think about this as an issue of sexism Uh, and I mean that is true in terms of the poor outcomes for females in general even uh, many white women they have poor uh, maternal health uh, for child bearing ladies in this part of the world period but it's substantially worse for black females but to get them to think of this as a sexism issue as a women's rights issue reproductive health as opposed to this is another component of white supremacy racism uh, and I thought of the book countdown as well for totally different reasons I I played that segment I know we have some cows listeners there are a number of black people who say I think all of this is propaganda I don't think this any of these statistics about black mothers uh, dying in childbirth at I think they said three to one ratio to white women I don't think that's true I think all of this is just racist propaganda and lies to scare black females to not have children or to be unnecessarily paranoid and fearful through the process that oh man something you know catastrophic is going to happen and oh it's going to be awful and you know all the rest of it um, I do not think that is the case uh, I have not heard that from anyone who is a medical professional by the way uh, it's just been other folks who are listeners no one who is a medical professional that's not my view and I remembered the book Countdown not, not to mention medical apartheid among many others but Countdown like just based on that alone and the environment where racists warehouse black people and the food 
Tops grocery store, which they said is like a big 7-Eleven, there's absolutely zero evidence that would lead me to think that that is wrong. And I don't exactly look at black males and black females of a childbearing age and see lots of folks saying, ooh, we, we can't go out here and be reckless with procreating because it could be really dangerous. I'm a black female and I could die. I don't, I don't see that on a widespread basis. Now, maybe I'm up here in the Pacific Northwest. Maybe I'm not around enough black females, but I do not see that on a widespread basis at all. Please set me straight if I'm in error. Email is untiljustice at gmail.com. Archive, catch me if you hear it. Archive, you can let us know right now, star 61, if you are seeing things differently in your part of the world. Uh, oh, last one thing, and then we'll get our other folks, Bay Area Mom and other people. Uh, in Idaho, where they brought up all the LGBTQ, all the rest of it, individuals uh, being attacked. No one should be mistreated, system of justice. Uh, but I, lots of racial narrowing. We talked about that before and making it just seem like these small number of white people who they are calling uh, far right, right wingers, extremists, that they are the racists and not the rest of us. See, the good white people, we drove them out of this area. And you even heard in the report where they said it seemed like a good number of people were like, nah, I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's the case either. What does it mean to be white? That's just a small subset, a minority, if you will, of the white race at large, the so-called extremists and national front and proud boys, the boogaloo, all the rest of it, KKK. And again, that's my na- my area, Idaho, that Gus's neighbors. I've been to Idaho before, right next door, Montana. I said that the uh, Pacific Northwest, that is Idaho, Montana, Oregon, Washington State, Alaska, and a little bit of Canada. We have listeners in Alaska, like plural. I didn't even know. I thought we just had like one or two, like one called in, and then other folks were investing in everything. We're in Alaska. Stunned. Uh, see if we can get up there to visit. Uh, that's one. I have not been to the state of Alaska, but this whole region, prominent, lots rife for study. Like I myself, Gus T, I need to know more about Idaho and all of that because that has long been talked about this region as a haven for white supremacist efforts. Uh, they're supposed to make this like a white homeland where they can keep all the non-white people. Oregon, that was in the state constitution. Uh, let's see. Other folks who dialed in with a hand up star 6-1 uh, line should be open. Can I be heard? Bay Area Mom. Yes, ma'am. Alright. Thank you for taking my call. Greetings to you and everyone on the line. Um, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, childbirth. Um, black women having um, high rates of uh, death during childbirth that does happen to us um, for a lot of reasons. Um, a lot of reasons. A lot of times, um, we don't we don't know we're pre- because we're not paying attention. We don't know we're pregnant, so that means we're not getting adequate um, prenatal care, and um, we're still reckless doing whatever you know, uh, eating incorrectly. A lot of times, um, uh, drinking, smoking, drugs, 
stress, environment, pollution. So we do have a lot of uh, deaths with either us or the baby. Um, and the, uh, the, what do they call it, sudden infant death, we have that as well. And that's not a, that's not a hoax, that's actual. Uh, they don't have to, they don't have to make that up to get keep us from um to scare us into um not having children um th- that's the actual truth to me and i'm not, i don't know a lot of medical stuff but i i've lived a little bit and i've known a couple of people or two or three and they've had those issues um Oh, the black farmers waiting on um, uh, the the the, the uh, I forgot that is a cute little name for her farm, but um, she uh, was waiting on some kind of funding from the um, government, and uh, hopefully, I was just thinking, I just hope she she's able to get it in a timely fashion because she's been waiting for a while and. Um, it's it's a shame how it's complicated for us to be able to maintain our uh, land, especially farmland, or and particularly farmland, because they're trying to buy it up from um, everybody, especially black people. So I, I hope she's able to pass it on. I hope whomever she passes it to, they're really interested in having that land and utilizing it and fighting for it versus maybe selling it when they did it, if they did it. Um, what was the lady, Carolyn, is that name Carolyn Bryant? Uh, the lady, uh, even touched her hand with the, when he gave her the money and then she, that's why she, uh, caused all that commotion and he ends up dying, getting killed. Um, I wonder about that, um, Emmett Till law, because it doesn't seem like they're, it's, I think they're waiting on a black person to use that on, they're not going to bother Carolyn Bryant. They're not going to bother that lady. They, uh, stay tuned for that. Um, the parks and the playgrounds for children and, um, how they, like, the low-income areas don't have any uh, adequate parks. So I would take my child to the park. Well, he's, he's not a child. And, uh, well, I used to take my um, my son to the park a lot. My daughter, too. It, it uh, Throughout the years, they have declined. Um, it's hard to find a decent park. Even when my son was little, I couldn't take him to any of the uh, Oakland parks. I would have to go to the hills and... Um, because there's no, and even the zoos support animals. So the Oakland Park Zoo, they don't, it's not suitable. It's not as suitable as maybe in the wider neighborhoods. Um, so for the children not to have any, um, where to play that's low income, that's close. That that's sad because there's nothing really to do. You're just in the street or you're in the house, and if no one can, you know, take them out to go to the park, they do lose out on um, that kind of activity. 
and then all the hangout, like in the poor parks, that's where all the people hang out and now with the homelessness, well, at least in well, my part of California, they sleep in at the park and like you in their way. So I'm like, oh, Susie, Lauren, you can't swing. He's there. So, yeah, hopefully. No, no, well, too bad. So, anyway, um, all the suicide attempts with the, um, the, the high school students, um, and the depression, and, um, them feeling just helpless and um the therapy um if they even think to get therapy um how far it is and then if they need to stay there's no beds available you have to wait and will my medical cover it and then you don't even know you're not paying attention to the children being depressed or looking depressed so I guess that's I understand why the girl said, you know, just really ask, are we okay? Just super ask. Make sure you know that we're okay. So I remember um, during the pandemic, I was um, on a Zoom with the kids just to see, just random Zoom checking on the kids. And um, one of the little girls who lived in Sacramento, she was saying that um, she was self-harming herself. She was self-harming herself, um, and nobody knew. I think her cousin was the host of the meeting, and she didn't even know the girl was doing all this stuff. Her dad had just died. So they have these depressions, and we do have to look back and look out for the children because we don't know how they're handling um, anything, stress. And they're so um, logged into these uh, gadgets, the computers and so forth, that you don't even know the video programming that they're receiving on this on all the screen time that they get because our children get a slew of screen time and a lot of the screen screen time is depressing and it has you responding um, strangely to a situation. So it is it is true. It is sad, and I hope the adults will look out for the children because they are depressed. Even in middle school, they're they're depressed and uh, considering suicide. And I had a kid draw a picture of somebody. Um, <laughs> she's hanging. It's one uh, in one of the assignments in her journal, and um, with her writing, she has. Uh, I don't know. If she was tired of writing. It was towards the last day of school, and she had. Um, I'm just asking out of the blue because I want to know, like, so what is this? A ladder? Just right over her, around her neck. Is it because it was mine? And she said, no, it's a rope. Oh, okay. So the little girl, she drew a picture of one of her little characters hanging from a rope on her, on her classwork. And um, so nobody's takes it serious until something happens. Um, so I just wish the uh, parents would look more. Just everybody, all adults, just check on the children because sometimes they hold it within themselves, um, whatever they are going through. And it may not be a big deal to whomever, but it's a big deal to the children. <laughs> 
And uh, thank you for taking my call. I'll mute my line. Much obliged, Bay Area Mom. Uh, before we nab some of the other folks who uh, dialed in, uh, the play- I thought the portion about the playgrounds was really important as well. Not that you know any of it was unimportant, but um, getting outside, the, all that talk about the hammock and what have you, is so important for mental health exercise socializing directly they're talking about that so many as she said so many uh, of the younger children are just gadgets and especially the last two years with zoom everything like do you have the ability to put that phone down step away from that screen and actually talk to a person and saying that you have folks who can't even do that now because the all their communication is, you know, texting away and zooming it up and all that, like actually talking to someone. Wow. That's crazy. Who does like get outside, uh, hand eye coordination, all of that. Get some vitamin D as the fellow was telling me at the park, like so many man out just right here in Seattle at Richmond beach, man, you will see, they will have the white people out with their drones, hammocks, paddle boats, fishing, exercises. I mean, just everything outside. And then the racism, of course, you know, but I mean, all of that knowing, oh, yes, so good to get outside, get your children outside doing all of that. And then they said for the black children, you can't even get monkey bars. Can't even get a swing set. Anyway, and then that directly right there being online, don't get to go outside. Don't get any fresh air. Don't get any sunshine. Get to interact with people directly just inside watching that 100 inch screen. And then all the depression, especially, as I said, the last two years, so many folks missed out on milestones where they couldn't go to this graduation, couldn't do that. University of Washington, they just had graduation for the last three years. Now, that's, you know, people that are 21, whatever it is, I'm sure for a lot of them, that was traumatic to not be able to go through, you know, that rites of passage, as they call it, and have your family and all that there and pictures and all that. For 15 year olds, 12 year olds and all that to miss out graduating middle school or going to high school or whatever, graduating high school, whatever. And to miss all of that and all the things that, you know, have been sacrificed, like check on your children, all of that. In addition to the system of white supremacy, frequently ask questions. See how that reminded me of seven bridges. 10 year old black child commits suicide as she said happening with very young children where they're depressed and all of this 10 years old and seven bridges commit suicide racism right there let's see uh, the number is 720-716-7300 the code 564 943 pound 
press star six one if you would like to participate. Uh, other folks who dialed in with a hand up, line should be open. Much appreciated. As always, very strong material. I, I wasn't able to peep the entire broadcast, but it was very thorough as usual. So, shouts to that. I did want to ask about this question of self harm and its connections with white supremacism. And if there were any texts or other work that uh, you or uh, the community or uh, the, I, I, I should say, the, the cow's uh, family um, are aware of as far as the link between white supremacism and, and, and self-harm, uh, because that segment uh, struck me in particular. I was reminded of the work by uh, Malcolm Gladwell, where he discusses uh, links between, uh, well, self-harm as a kind of contagion. Um, and as, as, as I recall, that was focused in Micronesia, which, as far as I know, uh, is, is primarily non-white um, as far as its population is concerned. Um, but just very interested in this question of the links between self-harm and white supremacism. And uh, also just thought that it was uh, telling in the discussion around um, this 101-year-old participant in um, the the uh, murder um, and genocide of, I think they, they stated the number at 3,500 people. I, I don't recall um, their name, but I thought it was telling that they used the term no, or the metaphorical term, no stone unturned, which is applied in certain instances with regard to uh, investigations or et cetera. Uh, and it seems in many other instances uh, that that type of metaphor is not used uh, when it comes to questions of uh, the pursuit of justice or the pursuit of um, the, the clarity about what occurred. In, in those kinds of um, heinous uh, uh, crimes or those kinds of heinous activities, uh, better said. But um, So either way, uh, just greatly appreciated as always, and uh, this is a, a, a key uh, space and platform and, uh, for the for discussion of all of these issues. Uh, before I go, I, I did also just, um, I found myself wondering how was it again that you came across the um, work around and the just the occurrences as far as uh, Joseph Christopher? Because I recalled that being discussed during the um, the book club, uh, but I, I, I can't I can't recall right now what the what specifically led to it. And I just find that nobody that I'm in contact with seems to have um, have any knowledge or memory of, of these occurrences. Uh, much appreciated. Peace, everyone. Yes, sir. Much obliged. Uh, 
We are not a family, just listeners. Uh, let's see. Uh, I am not familiar, to be truthful, the person who would have been really good to ask. <sighs> Grandsister, Dr. Francis Cress Welsing, but uh, just like asking me, I'm not really familiar in terms of resources, uh, connecting or investigating uh, racism, white supremacy and self-harm. Now, just as you you know mentioned that I started looking and they do have reports uh, that look at this. Uh, one, looking at one right now, discrimination and suicidality amongst racial and ethnic minorities in the United States. I did see one uh, quickly for some other parts of the world as well, but they do have studies. Look, and this is more recent. This is, I think, 2018, 2000, oh, 2020, even more recent. Um, but they do have studies that look at that. Maybe we can talk to some of these folks, check out. Some, this is another reason go to the university libraries community colleges because you could just do a search for self-harm African Americans self-harm race self-harm racism suicide you know whatever pick different keywords and just see what you get and they'll probably have quite a few reports as I said if you go to the university library college library you can download that report. You can take it up as a PDF right there. Read it at your leisure. Uh, you find the author, you know, get their email address. Ask them a few questions. A lot of times these folks will respond. See if they have more uh, current work that they might be able to send you or direct you to or whatever it is. Even a lot of times community colleges, you'll be able to get access to this uh, information. Uh, but I'm not knowledgeable immediately. If there are any listeners, feel free. Let me know if you find information. Let me know. Uh, I'll do some digging and see if I or investigating, see if I can find something uh, in my research uh, in terms of Joseph G. Christopher. I knew about that case, just a small amount of detail because of the so-called Atlanta child murders. That was a case that I was much more familiar with. And that's that's something that, that has stood out to me significantly in researching all of this over the past month and a half or so. Uh, those two cases were talked about together. They happened uh, concurrently. Uh, there are more reports than you could read where they talk about Atlanta. Buff the House Select Committee investigated Atlanta, Buffalo, many other cities, racism, white supremacy. 1980 go read that in the paper what they were talking about but uh, so I had read many books about the Atlanta child murders the list by Chet Detlinger he uh, investigated not with the police privately investigated the murders wrote a book about it co-authored and he mentions the Buffalo killings in that book uh, and I remembered it Chet Detlinger was a guest was the first guest on the cows when we came back on the air February 2009 uh, but I remembered and then even as we've been doing all of this I also read uh, the Atlanta youth murders and the politics of race that book also mentions the Buffalo killings I said you get I talked about a letter grade deduction it is an automatic letter grade deduction if not outright F if you're talking about the Atlanta child murders and you don't mention Buffalo these cases happened at the same time they have so many news reports of Buffalo officials going back to Atlanta people suspected is the same person doing both of these killings in Atlanta and Buffalo I mean it's just if for me it just it's baffling and disgraceful that people talk about Atlanta or at least they know a little bit about that case 
nothing about Buffalo. Uh, context totally eroded. It just shows the incredible success and precision that racists where they can totally erase an event like this from a collective memory where people don't remember it, no details, no nothing about this, not even a connection to other cases that happened at the same time, nothing. But that's how I know about it. Reading again, more important than watching television. It's mentioned uh, in two different books that I had read uh, and an author that I interviewed about the Atlanta child murders as it should be. It shouldn't be able to talk about that case without mentioning Buffalo and vice versa. Uh, let's see. And that's why the sequencing, I've talked about that for years, deliberate. That's why I put that segment on the Nazis. They can go and drag these Nazi race soldiers out of their wheelchair at 101 years old, hold them accountable for their crimes. You can do the same thing with Carolyn Bryant Dunham and the rest of these racists. They could go through all these lynching pictures and get out their facial recognition technology, identify and get the arrest in. That's not what we have. Let's see. Other folks who dialed in uh, with the hand up, our caller in Florida. Anybody else? Make sure you do not wait until the last minute if you have commentary to share. May I be heard? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. Thank you very much, sir. Greetings to Gus, the host, the listeners and callers. Um, just a few things i like to uh, share is from the audio segment. Uh, I did notice on the segment where they were talking about Idaho. Uh, I do remember seeing that report about, I think they were mentioning that, about the the, uh, the racist suspects that were arrested in that area. Uh, you know, I did notice that they they were wearing the white mask and everything when I saw that report. But uh, I noticed they used that term conservative haven or something like that. And I would really like to hear what that person meant by that, just giving their own explanation. And... It looks like they were getting into uh, an exchange, like where it was becoming into, I guess, like an argument or something, where I think the term war was being used and saying that we have to get our guns or something, you know. And and I'm and I'm glad that you know, and I appreciate you use the the Dr. Wilson audio to uh, you know to put it in the context of what's about to be. Um, shown in the audio because, you know, she was, I think that's what, maybe that was the reporter or something. She was like, you know, what, who are you up against? Or who, who you, who are, who are you at war with and things like that. And I think one of the, one of the uh, people mentioned Antifa or something. I guess that's supposed to be the, the, the so-called far left people or something, uh, organization. And then you have the far right, like it don't seem like they're giving definitions or explanations for that. And uh, like you mentioned, like they are trying to say, yeah, th these are the only races that that's what the message is. That's the message it seems like is being put 
um, into uh, what they're saying is that this is what a racist is. Like this is white supremacy or domestic terrorism. I think that's a term that's used. And the the segment where I think the the young black child was in the neighborhood uh, toward the end. It was an interesting comment made as well, where it was a, a female, I don't know if it was a white female, black female, said that, you know, I try to tell them or tell him all the time that you are not your body or something like that. You are not your body. You are not your skin color or something. So I was processing that as well. And uh, where the lady opened up the, I guess what she was talking about, the disparity maybe in the Chicago area, I think, about, uh, she she said non-white Hispanic or, or, or black, a non-Hispanic black, a non-Hispanic white, and then went to saying white and black. So, you know, it can, it can uh, get very confusing when it comes to how language is used. So it is important for us to uh, pay attention to every word that's used. And with that, that's pretty much all I have to share. And thanks for the program. Thanks for allowing me to speak. Much obliged, caller in Florida. Words are very important. Um, the you are not your body. I thought that was significant as well. That was the segment they had the young uh, black child uh, where he had been abused and shoved off of his bicycle uh, by some race soldier. Uh, and I mean, yeah, that alone, like, really. Uh, and she said, yeah, I, I tell him all the time, you, you, you are not your body. What does that like? I don't even know what that means. Like, I don't know what that means. I really, nor I'm not really sure how that applies to this situation. Like some grown race soldier comes and terrorizes me and throws me off of my bike. And you say you are not your body. Hmm. Hmm. Like, uh, I don't even know how to get started with that. Like I'm in my body and he violated, like he, he, he threw me off the, the bike, you know, I'm in pain. Like what, how does that help me remedy this situation? How does that help me understand what happened? And how does that help us make sure that that never happens again? You saying you are not your body. And that's like very common. You are not your body. You are not your skin color and all of, I have no idea what any of that means, nor do I understand how that helps us solve problems. Even if it's just, well, we do have racists in the world. Like at least that's a little bit like, oh, okay. What's a racist? And <laughs> we can have a, a conversation about that. Like, oh, okay. Wow learn something we got as opposed to you are not your body hmm 
I don't if they have like a fire, they talk about uh the fireworks and all that, supposed to be safe this weekend and maybe you're having a pool party or something, pool safety. I don't think if you're at risk for a fire, I don't want somebody to come and say, Hey, you are not your body. It's getting hot in here. Hey. You are not your body. Or the drowning, same thing. <laughs> I'm having a hard time breathing. Hey. You are not your body. That is a big part. That right there, that is a big part of why this problem continues. Is so much words are so important. And logic. So many she said now, I'm not a parent. I've said consistently. I don't have any confusion at all. The most difficult job in the known universe being an attempted parent as a non-white parent, so-called black parent under a system of white supremacy. That is a job I do not have, do not want. I cannot imagine you're a father, you're a mom. Someone has shoved your 11 year old. Some white man just comes and throws your child on the ground. Get out of my neighborhood. What are you doing around here? Cursing at him and all the rest of it. Like what? Again, now that's no reckless production of offspring in my view that's the sort of thing you have to think about in advance we're going to have this black child they're going to be abused terrorized anything could happen they might have to play dead in a church because a race soldier has come to kill black people or a grocery store any of these things could happen none of this would be the first time so We got to think about all that in advance. So we already got to be thinking, how are we going to explain all of this to them so they can try to keep themselves safe and so that they won't be confused about what's happening? Let's take time so we can already think about how we want to explain this. How do we explain this to a three-year-old? How do we explain this to a five-year-old? Let's already, you know, talk through that, practice about that, make sure that we have an understanding about the importance of that process and what that should look like. Let's accumulate resources and all the rest. See if we can talk to some other parents who've done this. That's, hey, we're going to put the time and energy to do this correctly. If not, that is a part of again racists are most to blame that's centuries of terrorism black people being punished for talking about racism being confused not having resources to accurately understand and learn about racism none of that makes it any better none of that changes the truth being we do not do a good job talking to non-white children about racism white supremacy what it is and how it works. Horrible. And again, hey, you can't teach what you don't know. So, I mean, that's not a big surprise, but wow, we are horrible at it. Horrible. Huge job. You're going to produce non white offspring. Make sure I am going to do an extraordinary job, way above and beyond the call of duty, talking to my child about this, explaining this as best I can often as I can and making sure that they this open line of communication talk to me at any time let me know if something comes up you don't understand or you want to review something ask questions about something this is something we're all trying to learn and solve 
thinking about seriously. While I'm saying that, before I check, see if anybody has anything they want to get in before we uh, conclude. That commentary about the man cave, so-called 100-inch television. System of racism, white supremacy. I think Mr. Fuller has talked about having ingenuity rooms and all of that. The way that we use our time and energy, our space in our residence, our time, all of that should reflect a seriousness. Like, I mean, you got a hundred inch television, you intend to do some serious TV watching. Like, I don't think you get a hundred inch television to watch one show every other week. I could be wrong. I've never owned a hundred inch TV screen. As opposed to 100 inch screens, having 100 books about a wide range of topics. That I think is what universal man, universal woman looks like. I even understand the technology about how to build that 100 inch screen as opposed to, yes, I need this screen so I can watch TV. Maybe he can't. He said he does electrical work, but still, I haven't seen. Maybe I haven't seen Real Housewives. I haven't seen it, so maybe I don't know what I'm missing. I don't think in a system of white supremacy, if you're a victim, I don't think that should be the investment. A hundred inch screen. I mean, even if you are in entertainment, if you are Will Smith, even I don't know. A hundred inch screen. Uh, anyway uh, any folks need commentary they need to get in before we get ready to wrap things up anything else peace peace do you have commentary sir or are you do you have commentary sir or are you yes Appreciated. Uh, so, for for one, I I just wanted to mention for everyone if you are uh, in a place where some of these actions are occurring uh, for Mumia Abu Jamal uh, coming up tomorrow, uh, July third. Just just want to uh, point toward that, and uh, organizers out there in Philly uh, have a website called Love Not Fear, which is named after the uh, activities that are raising up um, out there uh, um, as of this year. Love Not Fear, uh, fear spelled P-H-E-A-R dot com. Uh, and you can find uh, spots where they're raising up uh, action around Mumiabu Jamal uh, to commemorate 40 years uh, of, of him being inside behind uh, this madness that uh, he, he's been uh, enslaved behind. Uh, and so just want to raise that up, especially just in uh, acknowledgement of the, the crucial journalism that goes on here on uh, the cows as well as Black Talk Media Project writ large. And uh, Mumia is emblematic of that. So I wanted to just really underline that as far as this question of um, how journalism and, and truth-seeking and clarity 
gets enslaved and 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 uh, just constrained at all turns out here, uh, and and that's part of uh, what goes on. And and I also just want to shout out again the the highlighting behind, for example, what went on in Deep River, Connecticut, that you were just uh, you know mentioning again as far as this this I believe the child was 11 years old, this 11-year-old child, and just the the absolute necessity of us always uh, improving, always increasing our capacity as regards self-defense and self-defense uh, writ large, you know, for, for whatever that entails, for, for where we are, because we're we're constantly, you know, in, in a place of onslaught, and, and we have to you know, constantly be uh, on that level of awareness, uh, in, in my view, and, and based on observation, etc. Et so, again, greatly appreciated, and, and peace to all y'all. Much obliged, good sir. Uh, looks like tomorrow, 1 to 5, uh, they have an event at Thomas, Pla- uh, Thomas Payne Plaza, broad in JFK, that's in uh, Philadelphia, love not fear dot com, P H E A R, uh, love not fear from one to five tomorrow in Philadelphia. So if you're, uh, in the area, one to five, uh, should be a group there for, uh, Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, 40 years, a good, a portion of that on death row, uh, Mumia Abu Jamal, uh, folks still working diligently to see if they can get him liberated. The great city of brotherly love. That'll be tomorrow, July 3rd, uh, other side of the continent. Uh, let's see. We did our time for the evening, and we will be here tomorrow. White guest. We're talking about Buffalo and Joseph G. Christopher. Uh, and as I said, for this white fella, Neil Krauss, Dr. Neil Krauss, to write a whole book on the history of white supremacy racism with some of the main characters in the book we're reading on the book club about Joseph G. Christopher, the mayor at the time, uh, Mayor Griffin mentioned prominently uh, in this book, I'm sure Ed uh, Ed Cosgrove, uh, who was the district attorney at the time and some of the other uh, prominent white officials, uh, I'm sure they will pop up, uh, you know, in the rest of the book as I'm finishing it up this evening. But uh, we'll be looking forward to talking to him tomorrow. Uh, I think his book does give a lot of great detail about how racism white supremacy explains that massacre that took place last month but again joseph christopher should have been in this book white people leaving him out that is probably part of the reason why you have so few non-white people even those who lived in have connections to new york state no memory of this event white people have done a very excellent job suppressing obfuscating erasing huge part of what they do and again all of that is deception withholding information uh, so that people don't have access so they can have an accurate understanding of things all of that is a part of deception tomorrow at 8 p.m eastern 5 p.m pacific the book race neighborhoods and community power buffalo politics 1934 to 1997 dr neil much obliged for all the folks tuning in. Uh, if you are doing anything for the so-called holiday weekend safety, uh, they have rules against firecrackers here. Intelligent. Um, if you are out and about, it is all about sobriety. 
Uh, I would be very aware of your surroundings. If it looks like, Ooh, this is getting rowdy. This looks like something where enforcement officials might be summoned. Exit. Nothing that happens over this time period should produce more problems. It should just be, we can have some constructive good time, have a little fun, eat some healthy foods, fresh fruits and vegetables, middle of summertime, go to the farmer's market, but no conflict, no brawls, no problems. Already got enough of those. All of that said, uh, if you're out and about in a vehicle, you are for sure sober. Sobriety check. Well, I wouldn't really. I would not want to hit a sobriety checkpoint if I could help it even sober. But I would be real mindful of that over the next few days. Sober, buckled up, not on your mobile device while you are in your vehicle, especially if you are traveling. So you are far from your residence. That said, creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with other black people, victims of white supremacy. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times, in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person it has been time replace white supremacy with justice immediately cow signing out thanks all for tuning in no name calling no gossiping no reckless production of offspring cow signing out thanks all for tuning in Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, What's your brother. Problem? You're a victim. Man, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Yeah.